The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of this broadcast or podcast without the express written consent of Spaced Out Radio or Spaced Out Radio Limited is strictly prohibited. Listener discretion is advised. the mountains of British Columbia to you listening around the world. This is Spaced Out Radio with host Dave Scott. They let us play with all our toys. They let us think that we're big boys. They let us make a lot of noise but we're the world. They let us think we're Superman. You can follow us on our website, spacedoutradio.com on iTunes and tune in. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio on Facebook at Spaced Out Radio Show, or on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Are you playing with Bigfoot and aliens again? Uh, Dad, you gotta stop haunting the goat. It's scaring them. All right, seriously, put down the pointy sticks. Game on! Game on! Game on! Word is. Alright, alright, alright. Buckle up, space travelers. It's time to go for a ride on Spaced Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, Dave is ready for liftoff. Seriously, Dave? Really? Aren't you a little old for a tinfoil hat? I am. Toby. Bye-bye. 
And welcome to Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott, and it's good to have you along for the ride on this Wednesday, April 26th, Thursday, April 27th. If you're on the East Coast, hope you had a great day, evening, and night as we are live right here in Uncle Jimbo's cabin, right here in the Great White North, live seven days a week. We welcome in our terrestrial radio stations, WQEE 99, Rock the Key down in Noonan, Georgia, home of the Walking Dead. We're also live on the United Public Radio Network on 107.7 FM in New Orleans and over 160 countries around the world. We're also live on SpacedOutRadio.com, on Spreaker, KTLK, The Fringe FM, our brand new affiliate, Renegade Talk Radio in Las Vegas, the High Plains Talk Radio Network, and on Revolution Radio. Remember, if you're listening in on the Double R Machine, it is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to FreedomSlips.com and donate today. Our resident guitar god, Mr. Ron Bumblefoot Thal, kicks us off every night. Bumblefoot, formerly of Guns N' Roses, currently of Art of Anarchy is the man behind our music. If you're a social media junkie like I am, do me a favor. Give us a follow on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. On Instagram, you can follow me at Dave Scott, S-O-R. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn. Download our shows from iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, Player FM, and Stitcher. Our website is SpacedOutRadio.com. And if you go to Patreon.com for as low as a dollar a month, you can become a patron of Spaced Out Radios. Now, if you want to take part in this show, Remember, we do not take phone calls here, but we love taking your questions from the chat room. So you got to sign into one of them. There's a plethora of them on our website just by clicking Listen Live on Revolution Radio, on Spreaker, on the UPRN chat room, or if you're a valued member of the SOR Space Travelers Club, or if you head on over to Twitter, use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio. I will get to your questions and comments in there as well. If you head to our website for five bucks a month, you can become an SOR Space Traveler. You can also read up on the latest paranormal and weird stories on the encounter online. Our editors, Eric Markham and Everett Themer, are scouring the world for the best to give to you. You can also check out my latest blog on there as well. And if you've had an experience you can't explain, fill out an SOR Sightlines report. Our researcher, Mike Smith, is ready to find out what's going on. The media. Ah, uh, yes. The good old media. Can we trust it any longer? And if we can't, who can we turn to for the information the public needs to find out what's going on? Long are the days of Marshall McLuhan stating the medium is the message. Or the days of true journalism like Edward R. Murrow, who really helped form the role of the media, which was supposed to be the judge, the police, the jury, the lawyers, and the voice of the public. But somewhere in the last 25 years, that changed. All of the sudden, mainstream news was taken over by infotainment. Calling out government officials for dirty practices was replaced by non-news stories like Kanye and Kim or Britney back in the day shaving her head after a meltdown. The worst part about it, 
And the public has to take a little bit of blame here. Like it or not, listenership, readership, and viewership ratings all went up with the change. But now, is it out of hand? Is it too late to get the real story back on the front page or even the top story headline? Where do we turn? Tonight, a very influential member of the Chicago media scene, John St. Augustine, joins us to talk about the state of the media. He's worked for WGN, CBS, Oprah, Dr. Oz, and many others that have carved a career in broadcasting. John has also spoken at TED Talks, as well as becoming an, a very, very accomplished author. John St. Augustine, welcome to Space Out Radio for the first time. Good to have you with us, my fellow media friend. Dave, really great to be with you as well, uh, and, and all these... Uh humanoids all over the planet we're connected to by the virtual thread of intent isn't that the truth and you know what all of those people who are listening tonight there will be about 140,000 strong around the world john we're all trying to figure out what happened to the media and we're going to hit that hard and heavy tonight but there's a lot of people john who would like to know how you got your broadcasting career started you didn't go to broadcasting school you have a very strange story. Yes. It's almost paranormal on how you ended up behind a microphone and an expert on the media. You know, David, I never really thought of the word paranormal when it was all taking place, but as I look back on it below these two decades plus, that is a very uh, apt word to, to, to describe it. I, uh, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm actually talking to you tonight from Chicago to a nice rainy spring evening here, late in the evening, and uh, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, I kind of followed the rules. You know, I, I went to school, high school and college, and I thought I was going to, uh, you know, end up playing for the Bears because I was a standout high school player, and that didn't happen. And uh, I was able to get into a college and play uh, football and get a partial scholarship. But when I was 19 years old, uh, I was electrocuted, uh, working a part-time job, and I and I had my first near not, near life experience i it just got me a little more alive than, than dead but it was this, this profound experience in my life uh when i was a young guy and it kind of shifted my gears about how i see the world and how much how long we're here and, and kind of what we have to do here and then you know when you're 19 you're bulletproof so i forgot all about that when i was 27 i was in a, a, a hit by a drunk driver in an auto uh broadside and uh near life experience number two checked out all these weird circumstances kind of lined up to uh, to make sure that I survived that. And I had this profound wake-up call uh, about what I was going to do with my life. I didn't know exactly how to do it, but I knew why I was supposed to do this. And I'm a huge proponent of asking better questions in life, whether it's, I mean, the two most often asked questions during the day is what's the weather and what's for dinner. So that's not very much enlightenment around that. So when you have these wake-up calls and, and, and the universe comes knocking on your door, I think we're, we're, uh, the opportunity to answer that uh, is, is, is always at hand. And the second one especially really shook me up, and I went back to school, and all these dominoes started falling in place, and I, I thought I was kind of really getting somewhere, and I did. I went back and taught school for a while and did some pretty good things. And uh, somewhere around 1994, um, I had this, this, this really, you know, it's so interesting because it's like a connect dots. And as I look back at all these little pieces now, they all fit. At the time, 
they didn't, and you know we don't see them that way when when they're going on. But that's what hindsight's all about. Um, and I had the opportunity, uh, a gentleman who's passed away now, 20 years this year, named John Denver. He was a, a very a popular singer songwriter for many years, and he and I were good friends. But back in 1994, uh, I was asked to speak at his Windstar Choices for the Future Symposium. And the odd thing about it was that I hadn't written any books or been on the radio or Dr. Oz's producer or, you know, the Oprah thing. I had nothing. I was just a regular guy, but there was something inside kind of burning in me. And I went through this weird process of, of watching The Tonight Show one night, and uh, John came on as a guest, and uh, Jay Leno was the host. And I, you know, I had already known John, and, and, and that was fine, but then he came on, and I was watching on the couch, and when he was introduced, I had this overwhelming urge that I needed to go meet him in Boston two weeks later for no reason. So I did all that. And very long story short, uh, I went to the concert and found him and we connected. And afterwards, he says, like, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm not really sure what I'm doing here. I thought you would know. And he didn't know. And we started having this conversation about things and, and, and life and what's going on in the world and things he was concerned about, things I was concerned about. And I remembered I had some letters in my jacket pocket that some kids had wrote, wrote to me after I did a couple talks, you know, at their school, that's a long way from doing Ted talks at NASA all those years ago. And, um, I gave them the letters and it was mostly to do with environmental things, which are very, very important to me. And, uh, he looked at me and he put his hand on my shoulder, Dave, and he said, do you know that your voice matters? And no one had ever asked me that, nor I had ever really considered that my voice mattered. And he said, I know the coming years will prove me right. And after that meeting, not much longer, is when, I, when he asked me to speak in Windstar, uh, when one of the, one of the, the uh, actually was Mae Jemison, our first female uh, black astronaut, had to cancel. So they called me, John called me, and I hadn't done anything yet, but he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. And it put me in front of people. And I had a message, and I didn't even know it was in there. So... That was the first flick of the first domino started falling. And within a couple of years, you know, when you follow the path, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's not all, you know, beer and Skittles, as they say. And I found myself uh, losing everything in Chicago. Uh, you know, when, when the universe calls on you, you got to be buckled up and ready. And uh, I ended up living in a small motel with my family in upper Michigan, not far from Canada. And, uh, I've had, had had this recurring dream from probably the spring of 95 all the way into the into 1996 until we moved up there. And it wouldn't leave me alone. Every two or three days, I would see myself on the side of the road with a backpack on walking, and I didn't know what it meant. And the people we moved in with, Native American, uh, Bruce and Pat Hardwick. I still am very close to them today, all these years later. And um, my wife at the time uh, found a job, and my kids... We're seven and five. One went to kindergarten. The other one went to, you know, preschool. And there I sat in this motel, uh, not knowing what to do with my life. And I had that dream again. And I went to this gentleman, Bruce, and I, he's a very spiritual guy. He's an Ojibwa firekeeper, a very respected man. And I told him what was happening. And he took me behind his house. And there's this big lodge on their property. It's huge, 30 feet high in the middle. Fire going in there all the time, stuff like that. And again, you got to remember, I'm, I'm just a Cubs fan here. You know I mean? All this stuff that's happening to me is so far out of my comfort zone and my belief system, it's just freaking me out. But we get behind there, he, he, he grabs my hand and he says, you have a choice. 
you've been given a vision. And like it happens every day, but it doesn't, but it, it was. And he said, you have a choice. You could, you could go back the way you came or you could find out what you're supposed to do. Kind of like door number two, and let's make a deal. And I, and I, I knew where my life had taken me and I needed to know what was ahead. And so as soon as I said, I think I'm supposed to take door number two, he calls together this council of people that I didn't know. Uh, and again, here I am, a 37-year-old college degree, ex-football player, ex-teacher, you know, teacher, looking for my way in life. I had done everything by the rules. I'd gone to college. I got a degree. I did all that stuff, and my life still was not working the way I thought. I had no reason to be in that motel at 37. I felt like a failure. And all these people came together. When we got in there, I knew, Dave, that from my from the bottom of my feet up, I was supposed to walk from that lodge to Chicago and back on foot. I just knew it. And I, I said that I, this is what I'm supposed to do. And it makes no sense. I just came from there. And a gentleman on the other side of the fire, long white hair, named Dwayne, he stands up, says, I've been waiting for you. I'll go with you. And that set off a firestorm of what the, that continued for, you know, the whole time we took a walk, another guy joined us, Joe Johnson, who I'd never met before. And all these puzzle pieces were falling together. So we get on the walk. We go all the way to Chicago. It's, it, that's a whole nother week's worth of shows right there uh, that we could talk about sometime. But I we get to Chicago and, and uh, Dwayne eventually goes back north and Joe goes back to Detroit. And I started walking back north from Chicago uh, to the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, alone. And it was the first time that I can recall that I was truly alone. I had no one with me, uh, not my family, not friends, nobody. I was just walking. And I had walked already, you know, for seven weeks. So I was, I looked like Jeremiah Johnson. I had a beard and the backpack and the whole thing. And all this had happened. And, and uh, the most amazing thing in my life to that point occurred outside of a town called Oconomowoc, Wisconsin. And I was just coming out of the town, and there's a lake uh, in the west. And it, was, it wasn't a very big lake, but there was a breeze off the lake. And I came around a corner, and I'll never forget it, and I froze because the dream that I had all those months, over a year's worth, that showed me on the side of the road with a backpack on walking in my mind, I was standing in the same scene that I had dreamt. So again, you got to remember, I grew up in the northwest side of the city. We don't even put ketchup on our hot dogs here. So for this stuff to happen to a guy like me was so disturbingly wonderful that I had a choice to make. Either my belief systems, I hung on to them, or they would break open and things would shift and they broke open. And I stood in that scene right by the lake, just I had dreamt. And I didn't want to move because I, I thought this was the most incredible thing. How could you see something in your sleep before it ever happened? And here I am a year and a half later walking and it's happening. And so I stood there for a few minutes and this breeze came up like, and I just started to walk again. And I heard clear as day a voice. And the voice said exactly this, John, go on the radio. That was it. Don't know who it was, don't know where it came from, had a couple ideas. And I felt like I had been flicked in the head by the Almighty himself or herself or itself. 
and I was elated and, and uh, lifted. And the first person that came to check on me about six hours later, they already knew where I was walking. I got in their car and I said, Molly, I'm going to get on the radio. I'm going to talk and do all this stuff. And she was like, you just need a shot of wild turkey and a hot shower. You know, you'll be fine. Because I had no radio broadcasting experience whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I guess So that. when it really came down to it, yeah, so when it really came down to it, uh, that walk was a, was, was a catalyst and a, and, a, and a catharsis for me to shed my old skin in so many ways. And I wasn't, I wasn't a bad guy. I was just a guy, but I was, I felt anointed. I felt it wasn't even a religious thing. I felt, you know, there's, I think it was Einstein who said, there's two things that are really important. The day you were born and the day you find out why. And that day on the walk, I found out why. And so since that time, you know, uh, these, these connected dots, the dominoes, whatever you want to call them, they have been sometimes very quick and fall all together real fast. And sometimes they're years apart, but it all goes back to that walk. And I finished the walk a day before Thanksgiving in 1996 and I slept for a week and I thought, you know, the phone's going to ring and I'm going to be plucked from obscurity and go do radio. Well, it didn't exactly work out like that, but, uh, within a year I had a chance to, it was so, it was amazing. You know, when, when, when you're, when you're clear about who you are, no matter what's going on in the outer world and your inner world's lined up, amazing things happen because you're not working on the same consciousness as everybody else. And I think that's really important. Remember in all that we're going to talk about tonight, that how we keep ourselves in our, our hard drive inside lined up with who we are and what our beliefs are and stuff like that is really important. So we don't get swayed every time the wind blows in the outside. But I woke up one morning, uh, you know, six months after all that happened, living in this motel still with nothing. My cars have been repossessed. Everything stripped to the bone. And it was time to call radio stations. So, you know, you've been in radio. You're a radio guy. You get this. The odds of me opening a phone book and calling 25 radio stations in Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, over in the Minneapolis, Minnesota area, saying, hey, I'm, I live in a motel. I have radio experience, but I want you to give me three hours of radio a day for five days a week. Click, right? Not going to happen. Absolutely. The, the very last place I called, WDBC Radio in Escanaba, Michigan, about 25 miles from where I live, uh, the woman that I got a hold of, Alice Sabuco, who just recently retired, um, she had read about me in the paper. And she goes, oh, you're that crazy guy that walked from Chicago and back and like, yeah, okay, sure. And she's like, so tell me what the idea is about your show. And when she said your show, I knew something was going to happen. So again, a very long story short, I met with the owner and he said, what do you want? And I said, I want a year's contract, you know, cause I'm from Chicago. That's what we do. I'll figure it out. And he laughed and he said, son, I'll give you an hour a week for five weeks. So you get five shows hour a week for five weeks. And, um, but you're not going to make five shows because you've never done this. So, you know, that's the way it goes. And I said, first of all, I'm not your son, so don't call me that. Secondly, don't tell a guy living in a motel who walked to Chicago and back on foot, he can't do something. And three, in a year, you're going to wish you gave me that contract. And again, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So, August 27th, 1997, 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, three people are listening, two related to me. I think I paid the third one. I got out and mumbled my way through an hour and I learned what cart machines did. And I, we didn't even have a, anything to run a telephone, uh, the telephones through. And it was very rudimentary, but the station had been around a long time. And the first four shows were negligibly horrible. 
And the fifth show, uh, I actually called Stephen Graham, who was an old golfing buddy, who's Oprah's significant other. And what I didn't know when he said he'd be on the show was that on that Monday, he was on uh, the cover of People magazine. Tuesday, he had a best-selling book come out Wednesday at 9 o'clock. Like it was the Today Show he was on with me. And I got five more shows and five more shows. And finally, at the end of the year, I was doing a whopping two hours a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the, the owner, to his credit, came and said, you were right. I was wrong. I've never seen this happen. You don't just walk off the street and do this. And by that time, it was already on rails. And, uh, you know, I, I started my climb. But it all started uh, with that walk. And that's why today, to this day, 21 years later, um, it's not the physical walk, as my Native American friends have always taught me, that the physical walk may end, but the spiritual aspect of who we are and, and who, what we did there, that continues. And to honor that, I have to continue this work in all the different forms that I have, the books I've written, the TED Talks I've given. I've, been, I've spoken internationally. I've done well over 25,000 radio shows and 12,000 guests and have racked up all this experience and time. But it all goes back to that walk and getting my instructions, my orders from headquarters. And while I have uh, faltered at times in this business, I've never wavered, and, and I'm, I'm good with that. John, at any point when you were about to start this walk, were you a spiritualist? Were you someone who believed in destiny or someone who believed in a higher power to guide you? Or did it just kind of come to you in like one of those life whims that just happens? You know, I think it's just a little bit of both. I, I didn't grow up in a very religious family, and I didn't go to church or anything like that, but I've always felt comfortable, most comfortable outdoors. I always felt like um, away from chaos was, was, was church for me, even though I grew up in the city of Chicago. So it wasn't until I had met these folks, uh, I'd actually been asked to give the commencement address at Bruce and Pat Hardwick's son's uh, graduation back in 96, or 95 it was. And um, meeting these, these Native American people who were, you know, it's not a religion to them. It's just a way of life. There's, it, there's, it, it, there's, there's no beginning and end to it. You don't go to church at 9 o'clock and get out at 10 and go, you know, to the bars. They live this way all the time. So on one hand, it was, it was foreign to me. But on the other hand, it was irresistible to me to go, I get that. Because I've kind of been doing that without knowing what it is. So, but it's, it's a long way, Dave, from being, you know, having a concept or a theory about uh, spirituality or presence or anything higher power, and then having the actual application in your life like you would hear something and then act on that. My friends to this day, you know, I, I kid people all the time. You know, when I go out into these corporate talks, sometimes I get paid more than my dad made in a month to go talk for an hour. It's fascinating to me, but, and I'm grateful for it. But I say to people, you know, my best grades in school were lunch and gym. How in the, how in the world could this, could I go from a knuckle dragging football guy to standing upright and doing this work? And it's about evolution, but it's conscious evolution. It's not, you know, uh, you know, in life you're either evolving or revolving. And when I got tired of revolving, I think the universe said, okay, here's some opportunities for you, but you have to accept them. And I think that that's there for everybody all the time. And it's, it's in disguise because if it was in the wide open, we wouldn't do it. We would totally, totally miss it. But there's so many things, so many experiences we have that we can't explain. And that those, in my opinion, the less we can explain it, the more we have to examine it because those are the things that have the hidden gems in them. So in a roundabout way, answering your question, there's a little bit of both. But again, it's one thing to go to church or 
or go to a prayer meeting or do something and ask for an intervention or ask for something to happen. But then you have it happen. You're like, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Because it's just a, it's just a, a huge leap of faith, literally. You know, you said something that really resonated with me when you started going through the phone book and looking for radio stations to pick you up. Back in 1997, I was about to enter my second and final year of broadcasting school. And my graduation mm-hmm. present for my ex-wife was, I'm pregnant. So here I am, <laughs> freshly graduated, knowing that we have a baby due in 1999, this now being 1998. So just like you, up here, though, they had a magazine, a radio broadcasting magazine, that had every radio station in it. And literally, I started going market to market. And I sent out, you know, I think in British Columbia at that time, there was like 100 radio stations, maybe more spread around the province. And I was lucky. I was one of the lucky ones, where in my first 10 tapes that I sent out, because you sent out little cassette tapes, to each, sure. you, you know, to each radio station, and I actually got a hit on one, and they sent me to this small remote station on Vancouver Island. You know, I had a <laughs> beachfront view, and I'm making a whopping thirteen hundred and fifty dollars a month, or pardon me, sixteen hundred fifty dollars <laughs> a month. But I was in the radio; mm-hmm. I was big time, and yeah. then, yeah. And, then, and then you realize you get it more addicted to the microphone than the paycheck. So that that sounded you know, very, yeah. very familiar. Yeah, you, you get it. You get it. And you know what was interesting to me, too? Um, so, again, you know, in one, one respect, a couple of radio guys beating the hell out of the, 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 uh, the business is not the best uh, entertainment, but it is an inside look into what I think, uh, and we're going to get to in a little bit about the media, is that there's a huge difference. There's a vast difference between what goes on behind the mic uh, and, and what people hear coming out the other end and, and how those pieces work and, and how, what a challenging, difficult, strange, wonderful business this is if you can find a niche and hang into it. It's also very shaky. It's, it's getting shakier as, as it goes along. And, and I don't know that anybody's totally figured out yet the, uh, the model for, 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 for the very talented people like yourself to, you know, do a podcast or do a broadcast like this and then also, you know, pay the bills. There, I have friends of mine that are making six figures, seven figures talking about baseball all day. You know, I, 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 I don't have those kind of chops. I wish I did. Uh, I've probably turned down a half a dozen offers over the last 20 years to, uh, you know, uh, be a staunch Republican or a flaming Democrat. And both of those would have earned me serious money. And I couldn't do it because it's not what I was mandated to do. I have something to talk about and, and it's, it's worked for me, uh, but it's been work for me at the same time. So when I started, I sold it, I produced it, I hosted it. Um, and I believed it and I felt anointed to do that. So I kind of just followed that. And it was amazing to me, the things that would happen that were somehow caused by my actions, but not directly. So for example, Bill Curtis, who uh, is an iconic journalist, he's done everything you can imagine. He's an anchorman movies and he's a, he's a documentary filmmaker and he's been on television for 40 years and all that. He's a very good friend of mine, but back before he was a friend of mine, when I got on the air, he, he did a couple shows of mine and at the time he was the host of cold case files or American justice. One or the other on a and E huge, huge deal, you know, 17 million people a week watching these, these shows. And so because he was a guest on my show, I had, I had to send uh, a tape to his office to get cleared by a and E just to make sure the content was fine, whatever. And this woman who uh, Joan dry, who was in his office at the time, 
calls me a week later and she's like, oh my gosh, how, who are you? And these conversations you're having, we don't have that in Chicago. She's going on and on and on. And I'm like, okay, well, who are you? And she's telling, okay, okay. So she goes, listen, I'd like to send your tape over to a friend of mine. If you don't mind, do you have an agent? I said, no, I don't have an agent. I'm in freaking Escanaba, Michigan. There's no agents up here. And um, so she sent the tape to a guy named Todd Musburger. And Todd Musburger is Brent Musburger, the sportscaster's brother, also his agent. He's also Phil Jackson's agent, a bunch of other media types. And out of nowhere, I get a call from this guy, literally when I was getting off the air, you know, years ago. And he's wants to represent me. And I'm like, who are you? And what are you doing? And the name is familiar, but I'm from Chicago, but it really didn't sink in and signed me to a contract. And shortly after that, I went over to ABC, left CBS and uh, was the first, this was a real, a real eye opener for me and an ear opener for me. I was the first male host in the United States to replace Dr. Laura. If you remember her, uh, oh, to yes. replace Dr. Laura on, on, on probably 34 stations in the Midwest. And Dr. Laura and I are not, we don't play in the same sandbox. And what I was talking about, what she was talking about, very different. And I was fascinated, you know, that you could call Dr. Laura and what took you 30 years to wreck, she can fix in two minutes by yelling at you. But anyway, uh, I, I, because I went over to ABC, they put me on 9 to 11 in the mornings. And I was on 34 affiliates replacing Dr. Laura. And I got more hate mail, <laughs> you know. And I didn't, I didn't understand what was going on, just being myself. And I found it so interesting, but it was also kind of like an experiment because over time, the same people that couldn't stand me, I mean, you know, threats and horrible things and all this stuff literally took the time to write a physical letter and mail it. And I would read this stuff. and Oh, my gosh, who are these people? What's wrong with them? Pretty soon over about six, seven months of this, the letters slowed down and stopped and were replaced by letters of, oh, I think I'm starting to understand what you're talking about from the same people. So I started to learn about human behavior, how we take information in, which had always been a, a big, uh, important part of my life, reading as a kid and taking classes and stuff and observing things. But it started to really show me this, this, this media presence, what people hear, uh, what, they, what, they, what they think they hear as opposed to, you know, what they want to hear and how difficult it is, how challenging it is um, to, quote, get people to change. Uh, and the reluctance that most of us have, that we hear something that we don't want to hear, even though it may be good for us. So when that happened and, and, and you know, the ripple effect that took, it just kind of went on its own. And from there, uh, one day I get a call from Charter Communications, which is a huge company now, but wasn't back in, 1999, and they approached me and they said, hey, you know, you're on these 34 stations. We'd like to do something. We try to experiment. And the experiment was they're going to put a camera, a television camera in my studio, and it's going to put me into 80 markets in, on television. And I said, who the hell is going to sit and watch a guy do radio on TV? No, that's never happened. Well, now everybody does that. But at the time, there were like four people, myself, Don Imus, Howard Stern, and I can't remember who the fourth one was, that they put these kids. So I went from not only the 34 markets I was in on the radio, but all of a sudden I was in 80 markets, mostly out west, that I was in, on their television. And they watched me, and they put this cool camera, and it was all remote controlled, and my guests, and the whole thing. And, it, it was, and I still have some of those VHS tapes. I look at it now, and it's just the most rudimentary stuff, but it was 
it, I didn't plan that, Dave. You know, that all happened because I heard go on the radio and I acted. I didn't, I didn't dismiss it. I didn't laugh it off. I, I didn't delay it. I followed it. And amazing, incredible doors opened because of that. And when that 80 market thing hit, um, all of a sudden, everything just totally shifted. It just it went into hyperdrive. And everything I talk about, uh, all the guests that I have on, all the conversations, while we touched on politics, weren't, certainly weren't political. Uh, while I touched on sports, certainly I didn't want to just talk about sports and politics because my whole thing was this. When I started in this, I was 37, had a college degree, and had done everything right according to how I grew up, and it turned out, quote, wrong, and it didn't add up, and I wanted to know what to do to make it add up. And so politics, how I voted, who was in office, didn't matter. I was in a motel. Whether the Cubs won or lost or the Sox won or lost, didn't matter. I was in a motel. And so while those diversions are out there, it was, I was so, especially on the walk, I was so away from all of it. I was so clear about how long, I, you know, what, what we do on the planet, what our possibilities are, what's going on, because all that chaos was out of the way. And so when I got on a chance to be on the radio, I wanted to talk about things that mattered to me when I didn't have anything. Because there's an old saying, it's like, the measure of who you are is the patience that you have when you have nothing and the attitude you have when you have everything. And I know what both feel like. So at the time, I thought, you know, not everybody's going to end up with a college degree living in a motel like that. But in so many ways, each of us are stuck at some point. And you can't vote your way out. You can't play your way out. you got to ride it out. And if you don't know what the tools are or that you even have them, you'll never get out. And so that was the focus of the show. And again, no, I mean, I, I have a lot of fun doing it, some hard con conversations, and, you know, do a lot of the, the regular elementary stuff at radio. But it, it, it took off and it just kept going and going and going and going so much so that uh, by the time 2002 came, uh, when I donated a kidney to my daughter, actually, uh, I needed a serious break. I'd gone five years straight, uh, worked my tail off. You know, you know how the business is. I did it all. So um, people came along the way, had a great producer show up and, you know, the, the contract I was, I was making huge, you know, I was making 50 grand here. I thought I was a rich man back then. It was doing fine. Uh, but then here comes a curveball. My daughter needed a kidney transplant, and above all odds, uh, I was the guy to do it. So it was, I had to stop doing what I was told I needed to do, and uh, we did this transplant in 2002, and uh, it would be uh, a couple more years before I picked up the ball and started again. At any time, seeing the money that was ahead of you, because a lot of people don't realize that it's only the 1% of the 1% in radio that actually make any money. The rest are mm -hmm. scratching and clawing between minimum wage and maybe 20, 30 grand a year. So for you to hit 50,000, you know, behind the yeah. scenes on the microphone, I was actually applauding because when I got my first big break <laughs> in Vancouver, I thought I hit it rich when I got a $30,000 a year offer to join their sports team. Yeah, and be yeah. their sports reporter. And so a lot of people don't really understand the magnitude of how hard people work. It really is yeah. a, a painful business financially. We always used to call ourselves pseudo-celebrities in Vancouver because, you know, we could go into any bar and skip any lineup, but damn it, we, we were hoping we'd find someone that could buy us a beer. And that's the way, and <laughs> yeah. that's, and that's the way it was for us. And... It was a good life, but you sure weren't paid like it. 
And a lot of people would always hit you up. Hey, you're you're with like I was in sports. You're with the covering the Canucks. Can you get me tickets, or can you tell this player that he sucks, or whatever? This right, is what right, what right. we went through. Did you go through a lot of that same type of life education in radio? to gain that experience, to see it from an outsider's perspective as well as from the inside to kind of mold and round your view into what the media had or was and what it's become? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, I was fortunate to work from the bottom up, literally, as I mentioned. So no experience, walk in, uh, no, no history, no background, don't know the right thing or the wrong thing to do. So it all looks the same to me um, because I'm on fire about what I'm supposed to do. It's easy to go out and tell it. Uh, you know, that people like me and they like what I was talking about. So, you know, I could kind of control that a little bit more. I, the higher up the ladder I went, the less I could control that because I was spending you know, more time on doing the show. When you're only doing a couple hours a week, you, go out, you know, press the flesh all the time and, and collect checks. But we three hours a day, five days a week, things change and change it. And on one hand, I I wish I had more than two hands, but on one hand, you know, I don't like to really work, like running a jackhammer or I was in the service for four years or driving a truck or, you know, 12, 14 hours a day in construction. I mean, I know what that feels like. And even though I put a serious amount of time in radio, it's never worked. cut you yeah. off right there because your phone is fading really out and you're sounding about uh, as far away in a tin can as possible is there any, that? that's much better thank you this is what happens when you slouch don't slouch john okay so what i was saying is that you know if you have an agent and such like that you're protected from those things but by and large the rank and file in television and radio uh the conditions haven't gotten much better since you started or, and when i started and it's it's a very difficult, tough business. And as you said, uh, it's if if you want to get in to be heard and 
and to reach people and do something you enjoy, that's fine. If you're doing it to make a career and earning a lot of money, uh, one out of 10. I've been very fortunate, um, and it's come and gone in times. Uh, I'll never forget when, it, when I got the call about, you know, the Oprah radio thing was, was uh, really, really interesting. I had just finished a show, and as I mentioned, I donated the kid to my daughter in 02. I took two years off. I started writing my, my first book called uh, Living an Uncommon Life, and I had the time to do that and went back on the air in 2004 in Michigan. And just, you know, because it's what I had done, I felt I needed to continue with that. And um, about this time of the year in 2004, I had just finished the show, and I had read that Howard Stern was going to get like a bajillion dollars from XM. At the time, it was just one. wasn't XM serious. One of the two was giving them a bunch of money, and I thought, they're going to come for Oprah at some point. And I knew her uh, from, from the past, being in Chicago. And uh, I sat there in my studio after finishing up a, a show, and I wrote out the Oprah Radio Network, Living Your Best Life. I wrote up about a seven or eight page blueprint. And, you know, there was, they didn't, there was none of that. She, she was just doing television at the time. And the concept would have been, you know, something that's uh, of, of a higher order, like we're talking tonight, you know. So it wasn't, it wasn't a mirror of her television show, per se, about fashion and stuff. But it was these conversations with people. Uh, and having shows, uh, I had it six hours a day and the repeats, whatever. Anyway, so I wrote this whole thing out and I called a friend of mine who was a friend, of, much closer friend of hers than I am. And a couple other people, we got a, a meeting in August of 04 uh, with a guy named Tim Bennett, who was the president at the time of Harpo. And so the, myself, uh, two of our friends, a gentleman, uh, Abe Thompson, we all go to Chicago. They're already there. I go down and meet him. And um, I bring this seven page little thing there that I wrote up. And, you know, look, I, at some point in my life, I'm not exactly sure when it happened. It may have happened when I was 10. It may be when I was 35. I don't know. But I've become very forward. I'm very aware after these two uh, accidents, which I call incidents that I've been in in my life, that I, you know, we're all on very much borrowed time. And what could, what's important at noon could totally be not important at 5 o'clock when you get a phone call. So I'm very forward with people. I try to be as, as courteous as I can. But you know, we're all, I'm out of time here, so let's let's see what we got. And uh, so to go to Harpo with seven pages on a piece of paper, not a big deal for me. You know, I've already been electrocuted, and, and I've given my daughter a body part. So, you know, anything after that, uh, not a big deal. Uh, and we sat at the meeting, and Oprah finally came in at the end, and what's going on in here? And I kind of said it, and she's like, you know, this is, uh, I think there might be something here but we don't know anything about radio. We just know TV. And I said, but I do. And we'll get back to you. So after that meeting, we went across the street to this uh, empty building that was uh, at the time, the comedy central, um, uh, where they taped shows, the studios, it was empty. And this friend of mine, Abe knew the guy. So we went over there, had a little after meeting meeting. And uh, that was it. About six months later, um, I'm cutting the grass. And there's things always happen to me when I'm doing something else. When I, when my mind is disengaged about, you know, I'm like, when are they going to call? What's happening? So I'm out cutting the grass and I get a phone call and it's from, uh, it's from Tim Bennett. And he says, listen, we want to move forward on this, but not this year because, you know, we're already, already in television. We'll see what happens. I said, okay, fine. And next thing I know, about another year goes by <laughs> and, uh, my friend Abe calls and says, have you heard what happened? And I said, no. He said, well, XM Sirius offered Oprah money for radio, and uh, you need to be involved in this because it was your idea. And I thought, 
yeah, it was. So what? But you know, it's business. I don't have a patent on it. I surely can't patent over his name. So a uh, guy knew a guy, and the general manager that they hired called me, and I went down for a meeting. And this was, this was again another one of those. Uh, I've learned a lot of lessons in my life, Dave, and the big one is expectation and reality rarely line up. And the more you expect things to line up and they don't, the more you suffer. And the less you expect things to line up and they don't, the less you suffer. It's just easier to stick with the reality, not think it's something different. So I go to this meeting. I got all my brag books and I got my tapes and I got what people think of me and it's all wonderful. And here's my guest list and I've done all these shows. And so we go to lunch and the guy's like, this is really impressive and I know who you are and I've watched your career and blah, blah, blah. Okay, great. And um, he says, do you want to go back and see the studio we're building? And I said, sure. We go walking back to the Harpo building and across the street, the same building that we had met in a year and a half earlier that was empty, they had bought that. And now I'm back in that same building across the street looking at studios they're building, state-of-the-art studios. And I thought, something's going on here. He said, the guy said, listen, I'd love to offer you a position here, but I can't put you on the radio. <laughs> I said, what? What do you mean? He said, I need you to coach. You're the only person we're bringing on that has talk radio experience. Everybody else is country or production or whatever. As, as a host, we've had some people produce talk radio, but no one has your experience. And I need you to coach Dr. Oz, Gene Chatsky, Bob Green, Nate Burkus, whoever, whoever the lineup is. Just let me get this straight. I've been doing radio hundred at this point, still thousands of shows for seven years. And you want me to, give up all that and coach these people. None of them have ever done a, a lick of radio in their life. He's like, yeah, that's what I'm asking you. So I went back to Michigan uh, crushed, quite frankly, thinking you've got to be kidding me. I took the walk. I did the thing. I'm all this. I'm all that. And uh, I thought about it, called the guy back and I said, so what would it, you know, what would this actually entail? He goes, listen, we'll, we'll do this, this, this. And when he told me how much they were going to pay me, I said, oh, yeah, I can do that. Because <laughs> money <laughs> changes a lot of things. And I went from making an okay living where I was at to, you know, we call it Oprah money. I just can't get around it any other way. Uh, they had given her $55 million to, to, to get this thing up and running. And it was spread over three years. And we had an operating budget and more money. You know, this kind of thing we ask for one pencil, you get sick. So to walk in that position, I had to check my ego and go, okay, listen, it's like playing football. You can't play forever, but you can, you can coach. And so, um, went to New York and, uh, was, you know, top line treatment. And, and, uh, I met Dr. Oz there and, and, uh, we hit it right off because we're kind of, kind of the same guy. I like to push on each other a little bit, a little rhino head button going on there. And, um, we hit it off. And for the next four years, uh, I, created his show and Gene Chatsky, Bob Green's, a slew of other uh, hosts on the channel. Uh, I did get built into my contract. I, I did a, uh, a one-minute vignette uh, in the first two years that I was on that, you know, they, they aired. I would write those and, and kind of get my short form in. And then the last two years I was on, I had my own show on the network as well. So it was a huge experience because what I did is I pulled back and I said, you know, maybe I'm not supposed to be on there every day, but I can get behind these people and help them deliver messages about health and, and finances and whatever it may be. And it was different, but it was satisfying. It was a taxing. It was challenging. It was uh, a lot of effort. 
uh, and rewarding at the same time. And I learned uh, a lot more about uh, how to deal with people and get them to kind of bring out the best of them. Listen, there isn't anybody probably listening to us speak tonight uh, in your in your you know, listener base that doesn't know who Dr. Mehmet Oz is. But this is a guy who the first time he put it in the studio, after five minutes, he said, uh, I got nothing. <laughs> well, you better have something. We have 55 minutes to go. So, you know, it was, it was this whole process of taking people who sound brilliant next to Oprah, but bringing out the best in them to, to, to create a presence. So uh, it was an was a interesting four years of my life, let's put it that way. We only got about three and a half minutes here before we have to go to break. And in the second hour, we're really going to get into the whole fake news and where the media is taking the audience now. And I think that's a very, very important topic. As we start to massage our way in there, do you see very clearly from the day you started following the media until now a drastic change in the way broadcasts happen? Or do you see it... John, where it's the listener, the viewer, the reader that has changed the way it happens? Well, the answer to that question is yes. <laughs> because it's a seesaw. It's both. It's, you know, we have a tug of war going on constantly. And I always tell people, uh, whether you're the, the broadcasting or you're the consumer, uh, at some point, somebody's got to put the rope down. And when that happens, the other side pulls and, and all kind of things open up. And we're seeing that. And so over the years since I've been in, involved in the media and watched the media, you know, we've went from, uh, you know, uh, four channels in Chicago to God knows how many because of the flick of a, of a clicker uh, and the information download, which we can get into after the break, of, you know, what our, what our central nervous system can handle and what it can't, what it does with that extra information. All those things play a role in that. Uh, so it's, it's like, a, it's a, it's a, it's a trade-off, you know, um, we have more information at our fingertips than any other group of humans have ever had in the history of humanity. That doesn't mean it's a good thing. Let's get right to the whole aspect of the media. Do you think that it is so far gone now that it can no longer be cured in the fact that people don't trust it? Or do you think that there is a chance that we could get this going back again to where the media is supposed to stand for the people? Well, Dave, I think it's a, you know, a very, um, the, the question itself, I think has the answer in it. And, and part of it to me is when I hear you say that people don't trust the media, well, I, I might disagree with that. Yet. A segment of people, uh, don't trust the media, but we trust what we, we believe in. And so, you know, um, there are people who I have friends of mine that were owned by a Ford, the Ford truck could break down 50 times, but they're still a Ford person. I know people that are just Chevy people and they won't look at anything else. And I think that says a whole lot about us as consumers that if we find something, even if it breaks on us, we'll stay with it. And so the media in all its forms, you can find the truth as long as it lines up with what your brand is or what you believe to be true for you. Um, and, you know, we, we'll get to this a little bit later about what we think reality is and what it isn't and how that lines up and how it doesn't and how that skews things. And so, I mean, uh, we, we were taught, you and I talked earlier today, and, you know, I, I, for a year I walked, walked into the studios at CBS here in Chicago doing a podcast and, um, 
every week. And I would walk past Edward Arborough's picture. And it gave me chills because he'd be spinning in his grave. And on that note, I'm going to get you to hold... I'm going to get you to hold on on that part because I want to fill in on that Edward R. Murrow story right after this. John St. Augustine is our guest tonight on Spaced Out Radio. We are talking everything about the medium of the media. Let's find out the state of it right after this in hour number two. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio. I am your host, Dave Scott. We'll be back right after this. From coast to coast to coast, Blacklight Uncharted is taking on the paranormal across Canada. From ghostly hauntings to the UFOs flying above in conjunction with MUFON Canada, they're closely investigating what's going on in the northern skies and checking out the apparitions that walk among us. Check out our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. We want to know your thoughts, we want to hear your experiences, and we want you to share your stories. The answers are out there, and we intend to find them. Would you like to become one of our space travelers? All you have to do is click on the space travelers icon at spacedoutradio.com. For only $5 a month, you can get access to some great prizes, as well as private monthly shows, newsletters, and a members-only section on our website. Become a space traveler today. The third Monday of every month, Spaced Out Radio is going to bring you a different look at everything paranormal. Welcome to the reporters. Jim Mallard, Vanessa Hogel, Denise Garcia, and Christina George join me, Dave Scott, for a look at the weird and strange from the other side of the microphone. We'll break down ghosts, UFOs, cryptids, and the people investigating them. The paranormal media has never been heard like this. Come listen to the reporters. It's paranormal news at its finest. Welcome to The Encounter. At spaceoutradio.com, The Encounter Online is SOR's trusted news source for everything weird and strange going on around the world. This is news editor Eric Markham. Our team of journalists are scouring the planet for those strange stories that rarely make the mainstream. No fear-mongering or fake news here. Head over to spaceoutradio.com and encounter The Encounter. Hey, this is Canadian Paranormal Investigator Mike Moore. The third Wednesday of every month, I'll be teaming up with Dave Scott to bring you Ghosts of the Great White North. Each month, we will bring on guests from across Canada to discuss their ghostly encounters. Canada is a paranormal hotbed with stories you've never heard, so we're going to bring them to you. So get comfy in your Chesterfield, grab a donut, and join us, eh? Have you had an experience you can't explain? Had a run-in with ghosts, maybe Bigfoot, or seen lights in the sky? Hi, I'm Mike Schmidt from the SOR Sight Lines. I'm here to investigate your sighting. Head to spacedoutradio.com and fill out a report on the sight lines. All your information is 100% confidential, and I will help you figure out what you've been seeing. File your report, and let's find out the answers together. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit, and expect a miracle. 
Are you interested in advertising on Spaced Out Radio? Head to our website at spacedoutradio.com and click on our advertising tab. There, you will find an assortment of ways you can get your product out there with us, from radio commercials to banners and social media. Have a product you like our hosts to endorse? We can do that too. Visit spacedoutradio.com for more details. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passports. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. From British Columbia to Northern California, Pacific North Weird has Cascadia covered. Check out our feature videos at spacedoutradio.com, where I, Vincent Zunza, and my super sleuth partner, Alexandra Sullivan, track down the weird and strange stories from around the Pacific Northwest, from Bigfoot to Mel's Hole, and everything in between. This is what makes life exciting. So why report the normal when we can report the Pacific North Weird? Right here at spacedoutradio.com. There's only one way to rock, loud and proud, in high definition, Radio 702 Rocks, Las Vegas. Every Saturday and Sunday night, as Dave Scott wanders aimlessly in the wilderness, you can come hang out with me, James Tyson, and Spaced Out Weekend. Starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, I'll take you along as we talk with some of the best experts in their fields. Spacedoutradio.com is the place to find us. So sit down, relax, put your feet up. Enjoy the topics like the paranormal, supernatural, intuitiveness, and so much more. Hope to see you there. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. Would you like to connect with us? Head to spacedoutradio.com for all your latest show info. And hit us up on Twitter using the hashtag SpacedOutRadio. Now, back to Dave Scott and SOR. Welcome back to the second hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to have you with us. Tomorrow night on the program, we get into something very controversial, something that most of us don't believe. We're going to be talking Flat Earth. Daniel Falkenbach will join us at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time at spacedoutradio.com. Hey, we want to welcome in our terrestrial radio stations, WQEE 99, Rock the Key, down in Noonan, Georgia. We are also live in New Orleans on 107.7 FM. 
the United Public Radio Network and spread over 160 countries around the world. Good to have you with us. We are also live in Las Vegas on Renegade Talk Radio, live in L.A. and Arkansas at KTLK, The Fringe FM. And if you're listening in on Revolution Radio, remember the Double R Machine is a donation station financed by you, the valued listener. Head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club. Atrabilius. Atrabilius is your password for tonight, so make sure you use it wisely, space travelers, as Bill sets the password each and every night right here on the Mighty SOR. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to connect with me live during the show. You can also give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others from iTunes. We're also on RadioGuide.fm, TalkStream Live, Player FM, and Stitcher. Our website is spacedoutradio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month, and you can read up on our journalistic section set up by editors Eric Markham and Everett Themer, The Encounter Online. My blog is on there as well. Tonight we are talking the state of the media. John St. Augustine is joining us tonight. And we really appreciate him tuning us in as well. John has a huge history in helping set up some major, major media moguls in broadcasting. John, welcome back. Good to be with you, Dave. Augustine. There it is. Now I can say it. John Augustine. St. Augustine. (laughs) Son of a guy. You you, like the Florida city. You're, you, you know what, and, and I'll tell you where I'm, I'm messing up with this, and I wholeheartedly apologize. because I it's, think it's the attributious term that came out. So, Well, we, I, I've done a few shows on a UFO crash in San Augustine in New uh, Mexico. So that is what is playing with my tongue right now that I'm not appreciating. I will get it. St. Augustine. St. Augustine. There, there we go. I got it, and I apologize to your fans who are listening no in as well. All the pe- I, I probably got fifteen text messages. I'm like, settle down. It's just radio, folks. It's okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, we got it. We got it now. You know, maybe it's because I'm following my Edmonton Oilers in hockey on the side here. Maybe I shouldn't be, but you know, we're tied three three, and my Oilers haven't been to the playoffs in ten years, so I'm a little knotted up right now. But that's okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that, and I'm not following the Chicago Blackhawks because they're not in it. So here we go. Absolutely. Absolutely. I know what it's like. I know what it's like all too well. We want to talk the media with you, and that's the reason why we brought you in, because the state of the media right now is in flux. There's a lot of people who don't believe the mainstream. There's a lot of people who are now turning away from what they thought was the answer, the alternative. Right before the break, you, you were talking about walking through CBS and seeing a picture on the wall of Edward R. Murrow. And he was a gentleman who absolutely, you know, craved journalism, where it is supposed to be black and white. You stay right down the center line. You don't go to the left. Yep. You don't go to the right. And yet, a number of decades later, here we are. Yep. You know, uh, the, the, if you have not seen the movie Good Night and Good Luck, it should be watched. Uh, it's a phenomenal piece of work. And Edward R. Murrow, of course, uh, became reluctantly famous uh, with all the McCarthyism of the 50s that went on and taken on Joe McCarthy. 
and using the platform that he was given to ask better questions. And we talked about that a little bit earlier last hour. And I'm a proponent when you ask better questions, uh, the opportunity exists to get better answers. And if we have the courage then to act on those answers, even though they may be difficult, things can change. But if we don't ask really good questions, uh, then things kind of stay the same. So Edward R. Murrow, in my opinion, was a, a master at asking questions of his audience. And he did that through all the, all the things that were going with McCarthyism and all the rest of that. But when he was given an award towards the end of his career, he was talking, there's this whole speech about lights in a box. It's very famous. And he basically says this, you know, this instrument, now he's talking about television in particular, but I'm, it can be radio now, it's podcasting, it's the internet, all the same to me. This instrument can teach, it can instruct, it can inform, it can inspire, it can build. But it can also do the opposite of all those things. And it can be a total waste of time, a total brain drain, uh, nothing of any value whatsoever, or just a platform for a bunch of loudmouth gas bags. And we each have to determine what that's going to be. So while that is an undetermined quotient on every, every person's plate every day, the truth is it's just lights in a box. If we don't demand and expect that it, it could be better than what it has been the last few years. But there's a reason in my opinion that it is this way. And it comes down to cold, hard cash. Uh, you know, from your years in radio and you, if you did any sales whatsoever, you would have to go show people proof. Uh, let's say that you're Acme company and you're selling the Wiley Coyote, some sort of bomb to get the road runner. And if you're going to uh, sell somebody something, you have to give them the proof that people are listening. And so in radio, every quarter hour, everything gets measured, how many people are listening and what, you know, as much information about them as possible. So when you go to an advertiser, you can use that as ammunition to sell them. These are the people that are listening. These are the people that buy your product. And these are your kind of people. And in order to do that, you can't have generalized anything anymore. There's too many outlets. There's too much competition. So back in the 1960s and into the early 70s, growing up here in Chicago, we had 2579 and 11. 11 was PBS. 257 and 9 were the main stations. And on Friday nights, if you're lucky, you could get UHF and get Channel 32. So the competition was 2, 5, 7, and 9. That was it. And it was personality-driven news. I'm using this mostly as the, as the news sources you brought up. And each one of those uh, stations had their own news team. Uh, my, as I mentioned earlier, my friend Bill Curtis was on CBS for years with Walter Jacobson. Then he went to the network out of New York. But each one of those had that personality-driven thing. And so... Early on, it was learned that people will listen to who they like. And, but the news was being delivered locally uh, with, with a smattering of, of, of national news through trusted mouthpieces. And Edward R. Murrow was a trusted mouthpiece. He was a guy who, who uh, there's awards named after him. You get an Edward R. Murrow award in broadcasting, you're doing something right. Uh, but what's happened over a period of time is because of all the diversions and, uh, you know, the, sometimes when you diversify, you diversify so many outlets now that just getting the regular old news isn't enough. There's no room for that. And it goes across the board in cable channels and all the rest, like the History Channel. There was a time TLC was the learning channel. 
you don't learn a hell of a lot watching it, in my opinion. But they started out as one thing, and they, in order to survive, they had to become something else. And the only way you survive is by billing and advertising and sponsors. So then you have to create programs based on competition and come up with stuff based on your demographics of who's watching you and who isn't and try to get those people to come in and come up with all this stuff. So when you mentioned earlier about infotainment and that those kind of numbers are bigger because we've been girded for years uh, and groomed as a society to watch these shows that are, forget the reality stuff, which is bad enough in my opinion, but all the rest of these shows, you know, celebrity sells. And so when you have, 22 minute broadcast of the news at night and you know uh, 16 minutes of that maybe is stuff you can use and the rest of it's just all filler now you're down to 16 minutes out of your day and and you know it's it's targeted pointed to one thing but it still comes down to the mouthpiece so as we get as a society kind of i've always said this you know when you squeeze oranges you get orange juice and when you squeeze tomatoes you get tomato juice but when you squeeze a bunch of humans together, all kind of crap comes out. And our technology, the outlets, the sources, the voices, uh, all of this stuff is all squeezing us together. And the mashup isn't real good. So it's all driven by money. And so it's easy to come up with stuff that has nothing to do with anything real. Because the human mind really doesn't know the difference anyway. And you get these strange alternative shows coming up with stuff that are t- is, is totally false. But all you have to do is get a small enough group of people to listen and send you money and you're a success. And so those things become valid because the numbers are there. You know, we got half a million people listening to a certain thing, even though nothing is said is true. And on the flip side, you got the mainstream, you got the CNNs and the NBCs, all the rest. They're seeing the success of someone who's got a half million people talking about Pizzagate. So what are they going to do? They're going to come up with stuff to try and get that same group of people or like-minded people to come over to them. So it becomes this one-upmanship game, uh, and it's not a good thing, in my opinion. So can we get back to where Edward Arbor is? Probably not, but I don't think that's the point anymore. Uh, I think, and we had talked a little bit earlier, I don't think the point is this. Where do we find the truth in the news? My work is about, my message tonight is about this. It's about developing your consciousness enough to know what's true and what isn't. It's always been that way, but now more than ever, can you look at a story and go, yeah, that's not true, as opposed to just going fake news, being diligent enough to dig for it yourself, find out for yourself. Go to, Look, as a journalist, you need more than one source. So become your own journalist and look these things up and see if they're true or not. We talked earlier about the influence people have. And, uh, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that, but uh, when, 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 when you have uh, a few million people listening to you and you're telling them that there's a, uh, you know, a, a child sex ring in a pizza parlor in, in Washington and a guy shows up there with a gun to free him, something ain't right, but they're selling it. And so that gets duplicated and that's not good. How much of that is the negative negativity of social media? Because everybody has an equal voice on social media. 
even though we may be playing a part and showing that our life is the best and this is what we eat, this is where we sleep, I wear the best clothes, but deep down a lot of people are hiding behind it. Do you think the way social media is now and news stations wanting to take advantage of that with live streams, with updates, with Twitter being as quick as possible to get on to something that is breaking, that it is actually taken away from accuracy rather than what we are seeing now? Oh, without question. You know, uh, Buckminster Fuller, the great, uh, the great inventor, said, um, uh, it's, now this is 40 years ago, uh, before all of this, he said it's painfully obvious that our technology is surpassing our humanity. We're creating all this stuff and don't know what to do with it. We're the new kids on the block. If you look at the, the, the species that we inhabit this planet with, we've been around about a quarter million years. And in our present form, maybe 10,000, where we're kind of getting our act together, and then you've got to cut that back down to all of this is happening in the last 50 years. That's a lot in a very short amount of time. We can't keep up with it. I remember, you know, when, when you would get a phone – and that was all the phone was used for is to call someone. So I'm talking to you on this, something out of Star Trek in my hand right now, that is 5,000 things of which I know three. There's more technology in my hand than there was on the first, you know, lunar module. So we don't know what to do with all this stuff. And so it becomes like a, a kid with a toy. And you're a hundred percent. I agree with you hundred percent, Dave, you know, back in the day, there was five sources and you, you vetted it out and you checked it out and cleared it and, did all these different things. And now it's like, look, here it is. Here it is. I can't tell you how many times, and we had this conversation off here a little bit earlier. I can't tell you how many times I come across something that I've seen six, eight, 10 times. That's fake. There's it, it's, it's totally made up. It, usually it's, it's fairly benign for the most part, you know, like somebody will post like, uh, you know, the, Eddie Murphy died. Well, no, he didn't, but there's people said sending condolences. Nobody bothered to look to see if he's really alive or not, but they take it at face value because the consciousness isn't there to go do any further work on it. So it's like, oh my gosh, here it is. Uh, the one that bothered me the most, though, it's been circulating for like four years, has to do with uh, seven Marines that were supposedly killed in a battle. And um, they were all killed last week. It's always last week. And their names are there, but they're not correct. And there's this thing saying that the, there's a media conspiracy because it's not being put on the news. Well, a very quick Google search or Bing or whatever you want to look it up shows you that this has been going on since 2010, that seven Marines did die seven years ago. Their names have been juxtapositioned, and they're not accurate, and there are people left out, and they didn't die all in a week. And there's, so there's no media cover-up because it was reported seven years ago when it happened. But people see this, and you know we have this we've become like Pavlov's dogs, you know, the whole experiment where Pavlov would, would feed a dog and feed a dog and feed a dog. And then he'd ring a bell and feed a dog and then ring a bell and feed the dog. And then he'd ring a bell and not feed the dog, but the dog drools anyway. So we have all, we've become Pavlovian. We've become conditioned by this technology to respond and to react. I should say, we don't respond. We react. It's knee jerk, knee jerk, knee jerk, knee jerk, knee jerk. We're not built for this. My observation is our, central nervous system and even it clashes mightily uh those three brains the reptilian brain and all that goes on in that and the fight or flight we're in constant overload with this technology and not showing how to how to handle it so it handles us so 
when this thing pops up about the Marines, I get Pavlovian. I've seen this a dozen times, and half the time I let it go. But when it's somebody I know putting this up, saying, well, there's a big media cover-up, and they put, you know, you know, prayers for the family. Well, okay, there's prayers for the family, but it happened seven years ago, and there's no media cover-up. And when I, when I correct them, it's always, you know, in private, and they feel really bad. And I'm thinking, but it took me four minutes to figure that, that this wasn't real. And why we're not willing to do that diligence, I think, is really the bigger question. Why is it that we take things at face value or voice value? And what is it that allows us or we, we insist on uh, being in affirmed as, as opposed to being informed, as Frank Luntz says? It's, it's more about affirmation than information. And my, my opinion on that is, is that we want to know we're right, even if it's wrong. doesn't matter because that's, that's kind of where we're at these days. We're going to hold our ground, and I'm right, even if in the long run we find out that we're wrong. And so this little example of this, this thing that's flying around the Internet about these Marines I'm a veteran. I take that seriously. If one of my uh, fellow uh, Coast Guard that I served with had been killed, I'd want it to be accurate. And so when I tell people this is not accurate or true, on one hand, they're like, oh, really? Like they're let down. On the other hand, I'm thinking, this is learned helplessness. This is what happens when you have too many choices, too many channels, and you don't have enough brain cells to figure it out. And don't forget the clickbait aspect of it as well. Oh, boy. Give, oh give, boy. Give, give, give you an example. Before you and I talked before the show, I was actually around 5.30 Pacific time scrolling around Facebook, and I come to this video from this alternative news source, or so it's called, with a big picture of Edward Snowden on it. Snowden running from <laughs> Snowden running from police in Florida, and here they are showing this live police chase going on in Florida, and everybody's in this chat room. There's about a thousand people watching this feed, and everybody's oh, I hope Snowden gets away. And here I'm thinking, why is he in Florida? How did he get to Florida if he can't really leave Russia? How would he sneak onto a plane? So I immediately. Go to CNN. Love them or hate them, doesn't matter. CNN is up to date on anything drama. That would definitely be on CNN. Nothing there on their front page. I then went to the actual station that was broadcasting this live. Nothing on Edward Snowden. So, pun intended, it was a real snow job that these alternative news sources a lot of them are, doing to the public. Because we've taken journalism and we've turned it into fear-mongering or clickbait in order to try and gain cheap ratings. Sure. Yeah, you know, I, I, and again, full disclosure, we, you know, we did a little pre-interview conversation, which was really a, a, a shorter version of this conversation earlier tonight. And I was telling you about standing in line. And I, I have this theory about our, you know, so much of the work I've done is with people and their belief systems because of the experiences I've had that shook mine apart and, and pulled them apart and, and had me look at myself in ways I never thought I could or would or should, and then act accordingly from that point, I insist other people do the same. I insist upon it. If you're going to work with me and we're going to do things, I want you to know why you do what you do. Most people don't. As I mentioned before, I'm only half kidding. In Chicago, you have a hard time getting ketchup on a hot dog. Nobody really knows why. It's just this ongoing belief, well, we don't do that here. Why not? I don't know. We just don't. Most of our lives are that way. We have, most of the beliefs we have about the world, who we are. Listen, 
smarter people than me have figured out, therapists, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists have figured out that the way we see the world is basically set in stone by the time we're eight or 10. And all of those beliefs come from somewhere else and somebody else long before our own firewall is put up and we get to decide these downloads have been going on uh, in our lives and not to mention the, what I consider the DNA download from previous generations. And then you got to try and work out all this stuff with all the influences going on in the world. So the, the opportunity for people to change is always there, but rarely do they unless it's push come to shove. So you take people who believe something and not sure even why, why that rudder of belief is in place for them. And then you, then that rudder steers us towards things that reinforce our beliefs all the time. And then you add to that a thousand opportunities, uh, avenues, uh, you know, points of entry with technology to feed that. And you can see why people have a hard time uh, deciding what real is and what isn't. So as I was standing this morning at the store, I'm, I'm waiting to check out. And anybody that's ever been to a supermarket in the United States, or anywhere, probably you haven't in Canada, uh, there's this whole rack of these magazines. And there's nothing true in them. The one at the top was a soap opera digest. And they had two people on the cover who played characters on TV, I guess. And they've been doing it for 30 years. And they're... It wasn't their real names. It was, you know, it was like Babs and, and you know, and, and Zachariah, uh, you know, uh, having a torrid affair. It's not true. It's, it's a show. But, the, but the, the soap opera is selling that it's real life. And there are a million, my grandmother used to watch it. She used to call them her stories. And the reason that was so appealing to her is because their lives were far more exciting than hers was. So she could evaporate from her life and go into their lives. And even though, Somewhere inside, she had to know it wasn't real. For an hour every afternoon, the days of our lives was, was real to her. And so if you look at the influence of programming in our, in our uh, society today and the, sub, the download that, that constantly bombard us and drench our central nervous system with these uh, reaction uh, points of constantly pushing at us, you know, you push it, poke at people all the time. No wonder we act the way that we do. We haven't learned how to respond we're still in reactive mode. Responding, you step back and you think about it. Reaction is, look, there's Edward Snowden in Florida. And, and it makes you wonder. So on one hand, you know, we are the, the, the most brilliant species that have ever inhabited this planet. And on the other hand, you kind of shake your head and go, really? I mean, I stopped thinking. I thought Godzilla was real till I was about 10. Uh, it's not. And yet I can watch you know, you mentioned Walking Dead, uh, folks living, living in Georgia, listening in Georgia. When I was a kid, we went to see Night of the Living Dead when I was about nine years old in a drive-in theater in Chicago. It scared the crap out of me. To this day, I don't like watching the movie. Now, it wasn't real, but I had an emotional response to it. So then you look at the things that in life that are real that you have emotional responses to, and you start to see you get connected to all this stuff. And pretty soon, you start forgetting your, you know, your, your balance and your center and we're pulled constantly outward, and you can't make any decisions or, or conscious choices outward. It's all got to be inward. So as much as I've been in the media for 20 years, Dave, I have no television on all day. I have no radio on all day. That I don't need to download. I don't need to know the weather eight, every eight minutes. I don't need to know what the traffic is all the time. And when I do need to know something, I'll go turn on CNN or MSNBC or whatever, and I'll go across three channels and get each take and then decide for myself. And if you can't do that, you know, I can't, probably can't help you. Uh, but again, as I said earlier in this conversation, my goal more is not about where do you find the most trusted news source. 
is that can you develop a consciousness so you you decide what works for you and what doesn't. If you really think Edward Snowden's in Florida, have at it, but he isn't. This leads to a few questions that we have building up right now in our chat rooms, if you don't mind me getting to them, John, because I always like to involve sure, the audience ahead. through the show. Amber, all the way down in Australia, is asking, John, what determines an ethical versus non-ethical media presenter, in your opinion? Well, that's a great question, and hello down uh, in, in Australia. It's already, but today's it's tomorrow there, right? So it's like tomorrow morning there, I think. 17, 17 so, hours or 15 17 hours. Uh, yeah. 17 hours from me here. I do know that. So could you see the question more time, Dave? Absolutely. What determines an ethical versus non-ethical media presenter, in your opinion? Well, I think for me, uh, media presenter, There's, I think there's some different categories, Amber. One is you have a, a news reader, and a news reader doesn't create the news, they just read the news. So that's one category of person. And there's a lot of them, they look very good, they got, you know, that's the, it's the perfect hair and the bright teeth and all that kind of stuff, and that's fine. But they don't create the news, they just read the news. The producer decide what goes on the air and what doesn't. And that's a whole other show, but uh, that's what's behind the scenes. But if you're talking about opinion-driven radio or television, where um, people have an even more difficult time uh, deciding that, I think the ethical uh, versus non-ethical would be, uh, for me, um, goes back a little bit to the Edward R. Murrow thing. And it kind of goes into what uh, Rotary International talks about. Is it true? Does it help people? Uh, or, or um, you know, does it add to a situation or does it take away from it? And so non-ethical things to me would be if you knew that it wasn't true and you did it for the ratings or did it for the money, uh, that you knew that it wasn't going to help people, it was really going to hurt them in the long run, and, uh, and that it, you were just doing it for the ratings and the money. In this country, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the United States, we have a plethora of people who are, my favorite line, I get to say it, Dave, uh, know everything about everything, but haven't done a, much of anything, but they talk like they do. And it's the guy at the end of the bar syndrome. They're making millions of dollars talking about things that aren't true. They're not ethical. In my opinion, when you're doing that, you're not ethical. And when you're just making stuff up to get ratings and, and, and you know, cash the checks, uh, I don't think you should be in the business. That being said, I don't run a network. And if I did, they'd all be fired. <laughs> Let's get to a question from Trip here. He is asking, John, what are your thoughts on the fairness doctrine being killed and news turning into mm. entertainment. Should the United States mm. reinstate fairness doctrine? Well, that's a great question. That is such a great question. Thanks for having that asked. So look, so the fairness doctrine, so people know that in a, really in a very short form is, you know, you can say anything you want. Back in the day when the fairness doctrine was in place, uh, you always, you could have a rebuttal. There, there was always an, uh, an opposite uh, response to something. When the fairness doctrine was lifted, I'm going to think like 81, uh, somewhere in there, 82, 81, somewhere when Reagan was office. Now you just go out and say anything you want. On the other hand, when the Pandora's box is open, I don't think you can ever get it closed again. I don't think you can get people to stick things back into where they used to be. I think there's too much money to be made in the way things are now. I think that uh, uh, finding uh, sources like like what Dave talks about here, finding places where you can 
you know, kind of hear a, a viewing of points instead of just getting pounded with a point of view uh, does exist because there's so many outlets. It may be harder to find, but it, it is out there. Uh, I don't see it ever being reinstated. I think there's just too much money being made in, uh, in the way things are now, but uh, it's a great concept. And I think that was a, it was a, I can't say it was a kindler, gentler time. It was certainly a more balanced time. We've always had flamethrowers, but we also had firemen too, to put those flames out. And it seems like uh, there's more money in starting fires than putting them out these days. We talk a lot of conspiracy on this show, and here's a couple questions regarding the media that I'm interested in getting your opinion on. This one comes from Eric in Washington State, and he is asking, John, how often do you think false flags are pushed by media outlets intentionally? Well, that's a pretty broad question. Um, well, look... Um, I'm going to define a false flag as something like um, breaking news. Uh, Kenny Rogers is dying <laughs> from that on the low end, all the way up to breaking news. Um, North Korea is ready to launch a missile into Los Angeles. Somewhere in the middle of there, the, the, the news. And again, there's a, you got to remember something. There are entire staffs and organizations and, and, and buildings filled with people who are trying to get your attention. That's it. They just want your attention. Because once again, attention means uh, listeners, viewers, and that equals to dollars somewhere. And when you can uh, put up a false flag and get people to come over and take a look at that flag, and they can measure that you came and took a look at that flag, and then they could sell the measurement that they took when you looked at the flag, they won and you lose. But we get conditioned to this stuff. So how often do I think, uh, you know, I'm, it's probably incalculable. I think that at this point, there's just so much saturation that they almost feel like it's part of their business practice to come up with stuff that um, is teetering on the edge of true but it's probably more false. It's all about the headline. It's all about, it's not even whether it bleeds or leads anymore. We already know that that's the way it works. Uh, it's a great question because in, in this day and age with so many outlets, you got to get your attention. And unfortunately uh, there's a whole cadre of people who really don't care how they do it. Let's head on over to Twitter and Eric has a question for you at hashtag spaced out radio. He is asking, John, do you believe that we live in a sort of construct in that the media gives us propaganda daily to form our opinions that elites want? Say one more time. Do you believe, John, that we live in a sort of a construct that the media gives propaganda daily to form our opinions that the elites want? us to have wow you got some serious thinkers on this show dave they um, are brilliant let me they... yes yes congrats look this is a perfect example so here's your show and uh and and you have 140,000 people around the world listening and uh, i know some radio stations probably so do you that don't have that listenership during their morning drive and wish they did, right? So <laughs> good for you. Um, in my years, I, all I can go is first off by my experience. I've never seen that. 
I've been in newsrooms. I've been in boardrooms. Uh, I've been in around the television types. Obviously, most of my time was in radio. Uh, but I've never seen anything firsthand that I could see as a trickle-down uh, informing uh, information that would drive conversation that would be an intent that was decided by uh, just very few people on the planet. That being said, you've got to remember who owns these corporations to a great degree, what's behind all those type of things. And whether it's uh, somebody who owns a cluster of stations that says, look, this is what we're going to do and here's how we're going to play it, all the way up to the monolithic companies that are like, you know, we're, we got some serious stockholders that in order to get that done, here's what we're going to say. So somewhere in the middle of that gray area, I think it's a little bit of both. On one hand, uh, your listeners are a perfect example, Dave. If you're a smart person and, you're, and, and you do your work and your diligence, you can't be taken. You know, I, I find it fascinating. You know, uh, people talk about the impact of television, especially television people, but, you know, with all the violence that we see and all the stuff that goes on there, that somehow that can't possibly affect human behavior. On the other hand, all they do is bombard us with commercials to affect human behavior. So which is it? My opinion is if you become more conscious about who you are and what's important to you and, and sift through, because you have it at your fingertips in our day, you know, you had to go to the encyclopedia, which was, you know, obsolete the day they printed it, but now it's all there somewhere. You can find anything you want anywhere at any time, 24 seven. And so it, I think the onus is on us to be our own reporters, our own producers, our own directors, and sift through this stuff and make it work for us. And, and uh, if there is any sort of grand scheme uh, to not participate in it, and the best way you can do that is by being fully awake as best you can. Question going back to what you mentioned in the first hour, when you went on your spiritual walk, and this comes from the Revolution Radio chat room, and the person is asking, did this spiritual walk involve any singing, dancing, drumming, to try and bring in the energy? No, no. Uh, when I when I met in the, the lodge the first night, and it's very ceremonial for them, they, they did all that uh, at, at the lodge, but the walk itself, uh, no. Uh, it was so uh, sacred to me, still is. It was uh, much more in silence than anything else. And by the time that, that uh, my, my partners had gone home and I was by myself, uh, it was total removal from just about any kind of influence of any kind, music, anything. I was just walking, doing my thing, and it was almost kind of like, um, I look at it this way, you know, for those of you who had a shower curtain, you had those shower curtain rings, you know, that hang the, the curtain in the bathroom. When you pull the first one, the rest follow, but until you pull the first one, nothing happens. And when I said yes to the walk, and this is what I'm supposed to do, I kind of pulled the first shower curtain in a metaphysical way, in my opinion, and then the rest followed, and I had to walk through those hoops. And so when it actually happened for me, it was very quiet. It was very profound. Uh, there, was no, uh, there was no sort of um, celebration or uh, anything around it that would, that would have been uh, like calling it in. It was just all very, it's like I walked in, it was waiting for me when I got there. It was kind of like walking through a door. I want to get into fake news here for a few minutes, especially with the alternative media. Over the last number of years, John, where we've seen the public really turn their back on the mainstream, many people feeling they were not getting the truth out of 
what was being said on their television screen or reading in their newspaper the next morning over the morning coffee or listening to the radio on the drive home because we can't forget our radio brethren. That they, tur- that they turn to the alternative news source. And I think the alternative started off, and this is just my opinion, I believe it started off with the right attitude at heart, that they were going to be delving more into what was happening in Washington or up here in Canada, in Ottawa and around the world, rather than worrying about what was happening in Hollywood. Yet, we've seen... People like Sean Hannity, people like Rush Limbaugh, people like Alex Jones, who's the kingpin of this all, really exploit this into a lot of fear-mongering. And now the public doesn't know where to turn because they've already given up their trust on the mainstream, and now they can't Mm -hmm. trust the alternative side. So there's a lot of people out there who are orphan listeners, readers, viewers who now don't even know where to turn. How do we correct that? Well, you know, that's a, a, that's a huge thing. You know, in Chicago, we'd say it's like trying to turn a barge in the river. It's, it's, a, it's a very long process. I was, I was uh, reading once that the, the dis- if we start from a governmental perspective, that the distrust of the government came with the Warren report when Kennedy was shot. And all it took was one uh, or two people to say, you know, I don't believe this. And that was the end of it. That before, before uh, the JFK thing and before the Warren report, uh, you know, it was the government would never harm you. It's 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 there to help, and and it's and it was revered. It was a noble thing to serve in the United States government. And when that all started, and and we started rolling into into the Vietnam years, and people started talking about cover-ups, and and I, I looked at it, and I'll get to your you know rest of your question. It's all tying in, but I looked at that pretty deeply, and I. I started to think that there's a, the tie-in is that when you lose something of great value and you can't explain it, then you try to find a way to, to make sense of the senseless, and you may spend years doing it. And so I don't know who killed JFK. I don't think that's what the point is. But the point is when you're given information that, that you're told is true, and if it doesn't fit your narrative or somebody can convince you otherwise, then it's a problem. And so goes it with our our alternative uh, sources that may have started with some sort of noble uh, intent. Uh, I mean, you're being kinder about it than I am, but I look at these and I, I think that some of these, if not half of the people that do this, the Alex Joneses and the rest, they just figured out, look, there was a time Rush Limbaugh was a sports guy named Chris Christie or uh, whatever his first name wasn't Chris Christie. That's the governor. Uh, I can't remember. He, Rusty Christie or something like that. And he, he was a sports guy and he couldn't make it. And he was in sales and he couldn't make it. And he had a chance to sit in, in uh, for Morton Downey Jr. Remember him? I, sh- I sure Morton Downey Jr. Absolutely. Was, yeah, flame throw. I mean, you think these guys are bad. He was out of his mind. And so Limbaugh had a chance to sit in for Morton Downey Jr. He sure ain't going to make talk about sports. He saw that Morton Downey Jr. You know, was the, the loudmouth guy who made a bunch of money yelling at people. And so that's what he started doing. So... I think that while there may be some effort, maybe a one-tenth of one percent effort that, hey, this is good and we can uncover some really important truths, I think that you, if you lift the lid on almost all of these people, you see that they're in it for the money. And it, doesn't, it means, of course, that what, what they talk about is opinion-driven. And there was a conversation, I don't know if you've got a chance to see it, between Ted Koppel 
and Sean Hannity a couple of weeks ago. Did you see this? I did not. Believe it or not, the more I've concentrated yeah. on this show, I have actually got rid of my cable. I just couldn't handle the mainstream anymore. Well, I don't blame you, you know, and, and I don't watch much of it either, but I found this exchange interesting. And at one point, and I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, so don't, don't start calling me and saying I was wrong, but uh, Sean Hannity and, 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 and a couple were going back and forth, and, and uh, Hannity asked Koppel if he thought uh, people like him and Fox and all the rest were good for America, and Ted Koppel said, no, I think you're dangerous. And he said, why? Sean Hannity said, why is that? And he said, because uh, you're very good at um, selling ideology, but not reality. And Sean Hannity said, well, I think you're selling the American people short because they know the difference between opinion-driven content and, uh, and news. I don't think they do because we lost lo- that line left a long time ago. I mean, look, there are people still waiting for Gilligan's Island to get cleared out. You know what I'm saying? So when you look at how the, if you take all the information we have and you, you, you again, don't have much of a firewall up, uh, the stuff that comes towards us is so overwhelming. We tend to become skeptical of it. So if the, if the original question you asked about, you know, where do people turn if the fake news isn't going to cut it, you know, you can't go to the mainstream because that's all fake. I don't agree with that, but I can understand why people would say it. And then you go to this alternative thing where it's all really opinion driven in the cloak of news. You know, I don't want to, I'm, I'm really having restraint here talking about Alex Jones. I don't, I, I find it, Oh, please, I find it please like, don't. Uh, please don't. Bit, well, you know, m- mostly because for my own self, it's not about offending anybody else out there, but I really make every effort to take the high road and, and find the good in things and lessons in it. And and the one lesson I think is karma, you know, is, is real. It's a real thing. Here's a guy who's been making millions uh, telling people things that were totally made up, and, 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 and people were buying it, literally, sending him money, making millions of dollars, and it's not true. It's not even fake not true it's really not true there is no sex child ring in a pizza place in 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 washington but people the guy went there with a gun to go set him free that listened to his show and when you get people you know the guy might obviously isn't that stable but the, that's not the point the point is is that he's using the the, the microphone the, this this incredible instrument that was created uh for his own personal gain and pulling it off as something else so when you do that I believe you create a, I know you, you create a ripple effect. And now here's a guy, same guy, Alex Jones is in a divorce custody hearing. And now he's asking for privacy for his children to be shielded from all this media attention. We the same guy that was saying that Sandy Hook never happened. And it's a farce. And, you know, so it all comes back around. And when you find out as his lawyer says that he's playing a character, some people won't care because they're getting the feed they need. And so, a normal person who has a consciousness about it would go, hold on a minute here. So you're playing a character and I've been sending you money. Why is that? I wouldn't look at him. I look at myself and go, why do I need that feed? And so maybe the only discerning thing left is what we started with this conversation with is how do you as a human being with all that's going on in the world, get a, uh, a filter where the things that you that are important to you, you can kind of compartmentalize and section them out and stay with those things. And, you know, 
the, the challenge with humans is we think we know everything because we have everything and they're not the same thing. So yeah, it might be nice on trivia night, but if it's not helping your life and improving it, you don't really need to engage into it because it's, it comes to nothing. So we have to be very selective. I think going forward, uh, you know, the fairness doctrine isn't coming back. There's, there's not going to be less channels to, to pick from. Uh, but these, these, these side markers have always been a part of the landscape. There's going to be more of them because there's money to be made. And, you know, uh, there's enough sources out there that you could, you know, find yourself and, and, and make that your, your landing pad. You know, I, 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 look, I know that most of what you do is under the paranormal banner. This is a very important conversation, as, as all of yours are. But the, the conversation we're having tonight about where do you find a trusted source um, shouldn't even be a conversation in the 21st century, but it is. So the onus is then on the buyer. The buyer beware. Everybody's selling you something. You're going to have to decide which one you're going to suffer for the most or the least. Going back in history then, in your opinion, who was the last great broadcaster in the United States? Up here, wow. up here, and I'm sure you followed this, we have had some great broadcasters around this country, and one of the best is Peter Mansbridge. And oh, I, sure. And I know for a long time that CBS was only hiring Canadian journalists because they were the only ones calling it down the middle. Yeah. And I'm not trying to wave yeah, a flag here. It's not about doing that. This is this is journalistic truth. And I know getting back yeah, to but, Peter Mansbridge, when we had the shootings on Ottawa where a soldier died at the Cenotaph due to a terrorist attack, I do know that that film was actually used in journalism schools across the U.S. about how to conduct proper journalism when there are little facts. So who would you say is the last great broadcaster in the United States? Well, I have to go with the first name that comes to mind. It's somebody whose work I I respected highly. It's a fellow from CBS named Bob Schieffer, who just retired at about 84. And Bob, you know, started out covering uh, politics in the 50s, in the late fifties and then all through the Kennedy years in Vietnam and the rest. And, and to me, those are the journalists. Those are the, the men and the women that were in the field. They weren't just sitting in some studio somewhere uh, and, and, you know, spitting out a bunch of words that get people all riled up. These are the people that were in the trenches, literally, figuratively, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and carried all that with them. And Bob Schieffer was a guy who uh, was from Texas. He's a, a plain speaker as you can get. And he did face the nation for many years. And I always thought his, what he carried most with him was dignity of the profession. And you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, the whole concept of, uh, of the news is to simply report what happened, not tell people what you think happened. It's to report, here's what happened. And, you know, there used to be a thing, I don't know, Fox still does it. We report, you decide. Well, I don't know if they really do that, but it's a great concept. We report, you decide. But if you're only reporting half of what happened, then it's, you're only making decisions of 50% of the information. So the short answer is Bob Schieffer uh, and, and, and the rest of the stuff that, that I find fascinating and debilitating and, 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 and sad all at the same time. is they, It seems to be this, this um, thing where let's go find somebody who has the look. We can get them read the teleprompter. 
we can, you know, kind of massage their conservatism a little bit or their liberalism a little bit and get them to be a talking head. And they have zero experience of anything in life. They've come out of some think tank or some college or whatever, which in and itself isn't a bad thing. But when you, there's no way impossible in my world, you could be 24 years old and know everything about what's going on with no experience of ever having been in politics, the military, anything, but have answers to all these things. And that's what sells. And it's not about solutions. It's about uh, how this, how I can help you fix the problem. Eventually there's never a solution to this stuff in all these shows. It's always pushing it down the line. So, this young woman, I don't remember how to Tommy pronounce her name. She was from Texas. There you go. And she, you know, she was she was groomed for this, and and I found it fascinating the amount of. And then she moved up the ladder, and then Glenn Beck snagged her, and now she's suing Glenn Beck because she was on the View. And and I look at this stuff, and you know, and again, you have to pull back. Sometimes it's great, Dave, to look at the world under a microscope, but sometimes it's better to use a telescope. And when I pull back on the telescope and I look at the whole of things in, in all of this, uh, and you let go of the, that need to have that feed to be right or to have it fit for me or whatever it is, and you can be objective and not subjective, uh, you see patterns, especially being inside the media. I watched her for you know a year, uh, reading up, getting all worked up about stuff, and, and people ready to make her president. It's like, that's fascinating to me. So that's kind of where we're at as a species is that we're so – reacted to a stimulus without thought we take action and that's uh, i don't know if that's a good thing or not i don't think it is we only have about three and a half minutes here before we got to take our final break of the night and i'm hoping that you're going to want to continue the conversation but if you if you we have enough material for for another hour i'll stick with you i don't want to be redundant but we got time we got stuff. oh there's always material here my friend we'll even bring in eric <laughs> markham to throw in a, a question or two and i know our audience will be asking more questions as well okay. when it comes to say somebody like alex jones where he's now you know on the other side of the camera you know, being the interviewee with his divorce. At what yeah. point, though, are we supposed to feel sorry for somebody like him? At what point are we supposed to feel bad for people getting roasted in the media when they've done that themselves? Dr. Laura had that happen. You know, Rush Limbaugh yeah. has had that happen. At what point are media personalities celebrity? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's it's a fine line. As, you know, my former boss, Oprah Winfrey, at one point, I don't know if it's still this way, but she was the most, she had the most lawsuits of anybody on the planet per month. People never met her uh, on a television show, and they thought she heard, they heard something, and next thing they were suing her. Uh, and I never felt, obviously, sorry for Oprah, she's doing just fine. But a guy like Alex Jones, i got to tell you this, you know, uh, I write a weekly blog called the Wednesday rant. People can obviously your listeners can find me at John St. Augustine.com. And every Wednesday I put this blog up, they can subscribe and all that kind of stuff, which I find, you know, John Steinbeck couldn't get a book deal today because it is a big enough platform, but I can get, you know, 150,000 subscribers. It's fascinating to me, but uh, there have been things I have written that I felt I, I, I needed to write that I pulled back after I wrote them and actually had posted them and pulled back because for myself, Look, uh, my opinion, Alex Jones is like at the short end of the, of the, of the gene pool here. Uh, he's adult and he's making money off people. And if they're stupid enough to give them the money, well, you know, then they give them the money. 
uh, I can't stand it. I think it's, I, I don't know who I get more pissed off at the guy who's, you know, shucking and jiving in the charlatan or the people that are buying into it. It's a symbolic parasitic relationship. And if that's what they want to do, I suppose, then that's what they want to do. But when it comes to this roll around, like now he's on the other side of the coin, uh, karmically, I think some of that stuff takes care of itself. So maybe it's an individual thing. I've written a couple things that people are like, you know, I didn't expect this out of you. I'm like, well, it makes me mad that, you know, this guy's, you know, that money could go to Dave Scott and his crew. Why are they sending money to this guy? What? There's nothing redeeming out of this. Uh, but that's the, the, the nature of humanity. So to me, I think it's an individual basis. There are some people that it's so, especially on, on social media, one person says something and next thing you know, they're up in flames. The interesting thing, though, is because the Internet's like a, a giant landfill. It all, it's all covered over. And the next day we start throwing more garbage in. And on that note, I'm offended that we have to go to break. John St. Augustine is our guest tonight on Spaced Out Radio. He's going to stick around for one more hour. We're going to bring the preacher in, Eric Markham, from The Encounter Online as well. We're going to have some fun. One more hour to go right after this on the mighty SOR. While you're waiting for us, make sure you check out our website, spaceoutradio.com, and the plethora of features that we got going for you there as well. We'll talk to you right around the corner. The SOR Sightlines is a place for you to find answers to your strange experiences. Hi there, this is Mike Schmidt. If you have had an encounter with ghosts, UFOs, Bigfoot, ETs, or anything else that doesn't make sense, Head to spacedoutradio.com and file a Sightlines report. All information you give is 100% confidential, and I will personally help you find the answers you need. SOR Sightlines. Your answers are a click away. Have you got your Cosmic Passport? If you need one, tune in to Cosmic Passport on Spaced Out Weekend. This is Elizabeth Anglin, ET experiencer, spirit medium, and host of Cosmic Passport. Each weekend, I'll be bringing you interviews and support from other paranormal experiencers and the best in intuitive spiritual guidance from across the globe. It's all happening starting at 9 p.m. Pacific Time, midnight Eastern, on spacedoutradio.com. Hi there. I'm Butch Witkowski, lead investigator with you 4 cop On the final Monday of every month, you can listen to me and host Dave Scott on Spaced Out Radio's Strange Days. We're going to get to the heart of the matter when it comes to what's happening out there. People are seeing and experiencing things from ET contact to Bigfoot, and I want to hear about it. Your experiences are what we investigators need to help solve these unknown mysteries. So tune in at spacedoutradio.com to the final Monday of every month from Butch Wachowski's Strange Days. Visit purpleplates.com today. For over 40 years, the Purple Energy Plates have been delivering amazing results for their many customers. Inspired by the great genius Nikola Tesla, the harmony, healing, and energetic effects of the plates have proven over and over to be beneficial and often miraculous to thousands of customers. With their money-back guarantee and the many benefits, how can you afford not to get one? Check their site for daily specials and choose from their many energy products. You won't be sorry. Visit them today at purpleplates.com for mind, body, and spirit, and expect a miracle. This is your medium, Joanna, from Spaced Out Weekend, Two Mediums and a Large. I would love it if you would come and join us with host James Tyson every other Sunday on Spaced Out Weekend. Together, we will take your calls and your questions live. Our goal is to provide you with a positive outlook on deep questions that you may have. Questions regarding love, relationships, money, or whatever else is on your mind. 
Come and check us out at spacedoutradio.com. This is Eric Markham, news editor for the Spaced Out Radio's The Encounter Online. We have put together a great team of writers and journalists from all over the world to bring you top quality paranormal stories from alien encounters to the latest conspiracies. You won't find any of that fake news here. True stories and top-notch reporting as we look to bring these experiences to the mainstream. The Encounter online only at spacedoutradio.com. Patrolling the Pacific Northwest, we are always on the lookout for the strange and unassuming stories that real people are experiencing. Hi, I'm Vincent Zunza from Pacific North Weird. Me and Alexandra Sullivan have teamed to bring to you those odd stories that never seem to make it into the mainstream. Stories so weird that we'll leave you scratching your head wondering, is this real? It's as real as it gets with Pacific North Weird. You can watch our videos right here at spacedoutradio.com. Become more intimate and interactive with Spaced Out Radio. Join our Space Travelers Club with your new membership. For $5 a month, we'll provide you with special access to the website, monthly prize draws from books to psychic readings, along with monthly newsletter, private interviews, and more. Sign up today to be part of Spaced Out Radio's experience. Looking for a place to advertise at a very reasonable cost? Look no further than Spaced Out Radio. SpacedOutRadio.com has an advertising tab that you can click to check out our daily, weekly, and monthly packages to play on the radio, or our website including social media. From commercial spots to banners, we have it all. Check out our competitive pricing today. Don't have time to listen to Spaced Out Radio Live? Wherever you are, the car, the office, the shower, or even if you're traveling, we're right here for you. Each Spaced Out Radio show can be found on iTunes, TuneIn, and on our YouTube channel, Spaced Out Radio Show. It's the perfect way for you to catch up on our shows. For more information, just head over to our website, spacedoutradio.com, and tune in to us today. You hear footsteps in the empty room above you. A rocking chair begins rocking by itself. Don't be afraid of the things that go bump in the night. Reach for Spirit Story Box. The iPhone app the Huffington Post UK called the only ghost hunting app you will ever need. Spirit Story Box. The spirits are telling their stories. Are you listening? Strange creatures lurking in the night, the sounds of wood knocking in the forest, odd happenings right out of a fictional world. These are the reports I love. Hi there, this is author Ronald Murphy, and I would love it if you'd join me and Spaced Out Radio host Dave Scott the second Wednesday of every month on our journey into the unknown land of cryptozoology at spacedoutradio.com. From Mothman to Frogman and everything in between, hey, they don't call me the crypto guru for nothing. Did you know that Spaced Out Radio runs seven days a week? Hi, it's James Tyson from Spaced Out Weekend. Every Saturday and Sunday night, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, you can join me and my guests for some great chatter about what's going on out in the universe or even in that dark part of the basement you really don't want to go back into. Well, let's find the answers to your experiences together. So come on up to Uncle Jimbo's cabin on the weekend. For more information, look us up at spacedoutradio.com. The views and opinions expressed by tonight's guest and topic of discussion do not necessarily represent the official policy 
or position of Spaced Out Radio. Spaced Out Weekend, Spaced Out Radio Limited, its hosts, syndicated carriers, or anyone associated with this broadcast. You're listening to Spaced Out Radio with Dave Scott. Follow Dave on Twitter at Spaced Out Radio and hashtag Spaced Out Radio. And on Facebook, Spaced Out Radio Show. Now, back to the program. A child grew up too fast, we're running wild. Now we don't know who to pray to anymore. Welcome back to the final hour of Spaced Out Radio tonight. I am your host, Dave Scott. Good to go. Back on the air with you for another 60 minutes, especially after my big Edmonton Oilers win tonight in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Yes, I am a hockey fan, so I will brag. Tomorrow night on the program, starting at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time, we get into the whole flat earth theory. And I know everybody's buzzing about this one. No, but you know what? we got to learn about it. Daniel Falkenbach will be our guest tomorrow night at spacedoutradio.com. If you want to follow us on social media, you can do so on Twitter, at Spaced Out Radio. Use the hashtag Spaced Out Radio if you want to connect with me live during the show. Give our Facebook page a like, Spaced Out Radio Show. Tune us in on TuneIn, download this show and others on iTunes. We're also on radioguide.fm, TalkStream Live, Player FM, and Stitcher. Our website is spacedoutradio.com, where we have a plethora of features for you, including joining the SOR Space Travelers Club for 5 bucks a month, and you can read our brand new news section, The Encounter Online. We got journalists, we got great stories put together by our editors, Eric Markham and Everett Themer. So make sure you check that out. Bill Cardwell has set the password for tonight in the SOR Space Travelers Club, as he does each and every night. Atrabilius. Atrabilius is your password for tonight, Space Travelers. So make sure you use it wisely. We're going to bring in our terrestrial radio stations now the united public radio network live on 107.7 fm in new orleans and over 160 countries around the world we're also live down in noon in georgia on wqee 99 rock the key we're live in las vegas on renegade talk radio ktlk the fringe fm our brand new affiliate and if you're listening in on revolution radio remember the double r machine is a donation station financed by you the valued listener head on over to freedomslips.com and donate today. Tonight we are talking about the state of media, not just in the United States, but around the world, especially in North America, including Canada here. John St. Augustine is our guest tonight. I got it right. Yes, <laughs> I got it right. You know what? I, I figured it out. I fi- two hours. That's not bad. <laughs> you, you know what it is, though? I think it's my Canadian accent, too. Because apparently I've been told by by our American people that I have one of those. I, I, when you I, say the word oat, oot, oot in a boot, oat, oat side. <laughs> well, I don't hear it, but I know a number yeah. of our listeners do. John Saint Augustine is our guest, talking everything media. He has worked for WGN. He has worked for CBS. He's worked for the Oprah Winfrey Network. Man, you got a lot of titles. Great author as well. We're going to get into your book in the second half hour here. Right before the break, we were talking about where do people turn? Where can they get fresh news? We talked about how the alternative media is now failing people. 
Where do we find that down-the-middle journalism? It's not on a national scale. Do we have to go more local in order to get that true broadcast now? I think so. Uh, you know, here in Chicago, it's it, you know the, the 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 stakes are as high as ever. This is market number three in radio. I I think the same holds true for television. So, you know, uh, just an hour north of here is Milwaukee, and it's market thirty-three. So, just a matter of eighty miles determines so much. And, and you got to remember again, uh, and I think this bears uh, repetition uh, that this business once somebody figured out that people will listen to things, then you can charge them for it. Uh, meaning uh, in, in satellite, but certainly in terrestrial radio, everything has dollars attached to it. Whatever whatever it takes to get the dollars in is what people are going to do. Now, there was a time when uh, the uh, MMA uh, fighting was banned. But once they figured out there was more money in bringing it back than there was keeping it away, even though it was dangerous, they brought it back. Uh, you, you look across the board at just programming in general and things that nobody used to watch before because there's so much time to fill, you, you find stuff that just, you know, there's, there can't be any, for me, there's no redeeming value. I wouldn't watch any of it, but somebody is. And if somebody's watching it, then uh, there's money attached. So when it comes to the news, and if I use the local market here in Chicago as an example, we still have our big players, two, five, seven, and nine. But now, of course, that's all shifted. And we know the demographics very well, and we know exactly who's watching. We know how long they're watching, so we're going to tilt that. Uh, to those specific things. It, it, nothing, especially being in the media for all these years, nothing drives me bonkers more than, you know, the, watching horrible headlines for, you know, uh, 19 and a half minutes and then some feel-good story at the end. By the way, somebody found a cat in a tree. Now, you could do that for the previous 19 minutes. Nobody watched because we're conditioned to watch the, the stuff that, that gets us on the edge of our seat. That Even though we can't do anything about it, we've been conditioned over a lifetime of watching this stuff uh, to be attracted to it, and it's reluctant. So as far as, you know, finding that safe zone uh, for your for your news, uh, if you're good with what's local and they, you know, bring in a little bit of national stuff just as a smattering, you're probably better off than the opposite, which is the, the monolithic, you know, CNN, which I have friends that work there. We still jokingly call it CNN stands for constantly negative news. But, uh you know, they have so much time to fill, so it's this repetition of everything over and over and over and over again. And once you've heard it once, I think you're kind of done with it. So I like the suggestion of sticking with local. If there's something big national happening, it runs through a local strainer, which is different than some producer on the national level that's going to try and throw a bunch of false flags for people to watch. There's, let me put it this way, Dave. The local broadcasts are not built. Uh, they're, they're built on a, on, a, on a financial model, but it's not the same kind of, uh, winner-take-all than it is at the national level. So you're better off local. You just mentioned something highly important there when you were describing CNN about negative news. A lot of people have blended negative news and fake news together, but there is a big difference between the two. Um, there certainly is. I mean, that's obvious, and I, for me... I don't like either one, obviously. I, 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 you know, when I was on WGN here in Chicago, when the news would come on, I would turn it off in my studio. I'm, I'm hosting 3 million people listening to me, and I'll let them listen to it. 
And I eventually, I remember asking one of the news anchors, you know, who, who decides, who up there on the seventh floor is deciding what people listen to? And it's, you know, some, somebody's pulling stuff off the, uh, off the internet or whatever. And, you know, they have time to fill. So they're going to, they're going to fill it with stuff that has no redeeming value to it. You can't do a thing about it. And I go back to my, my point earlier about poking at people endlessly over and over again with information they can't possibly use. It just pisses you off. So, um, that's the bad news part, you know, especially here in Chicago with all the violence that goes on, uh, you get emotionally detached and when you're emotionally detached, you don't care, then you don't take any action. So try that for 30 years. And, you know, you wonder why, look, when was the last time that something here's, here's how I measure it with people. When was the last time you were watching something on television, uh, an event, not anything political, but an event that occurred that you flinched, you went, Oh, that's not good. And then you saw it either the same story later in the day or a day or two later. And that flinch reflex is gone because we're getting numb to the information. Uh, I mentioned before about, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about environmental things. I'm not a tree hugger per se, but I'm a human and I like the planet. I know how it works from a scientific basis. And so when I see the amount of information that goes out over, you know, climate change or species loss or habitat loss, the things that go with it, uh, I'm incensed at that stuff because it's a belief, unfounded in non-truth, and uh, repeated enough becomes uh, ammunition for someone somewhere to do things they should do. And fake news is, is just as bad. Uh, and, and that kind of thing, you know, for me, fake news falls into the whole, let's just make stuff up, and uh, if people like it, uh, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. So, again, to me, this is a, a, a symptom of having so many outlets that we don't know what to do so we'll just put anything in anywhere a lot of people who feel that the media is rigged these days they have this opinion and maybe their tinfoil hats are on a little too tightly i don't know but they tend to believe that there is someone sitting in each newsroom who is saying you're allowed to read this story but this one that's too much information there. That one's gone. We're not allowed to read that story. Much like we saw in Good Morning Vietnam, where they had the editors breaking down what Robin Williams could or could not say on the air. Now, up here in every newsroom that I worked at, I never had that. I never saw that. I was never told by someone, do not run that story because of A, B, C, or D. Ian Punnett former weekend host of Coast to Coast AM, when he was a guest on here, he said as well, he had never seen it. Have you ever seen that situation happen? I, too, agree with uh, both you and Ian, who I have a deep respect for uh, Ian's work over the years, and his wife Marjorie is great, great people. Um, Never saw it. Never heard it. Never once in 20 years did I ever have a program director or anybody uh, come in... uh, and say, you know, you can't be, can't be talking about that. Uh, never. And so on one hand, that may play big. Now, and look, that's radio for me. I know people in, uh, in television, and it's, that's a different, <laughs> that's a whole different ballgame. But uh, I don't know that it's the exact, you know, you can or can't say this or that. But there's a slanting of things to get, to get viewers. And they will go to the, to the extremes. You're in competition. All of this is competition to some degree. It may be high-minded and 
and you know information all that stuff. But it's all competition, and whoever comes out on top, number one, gets to build the most. And if you're building the most, then you're the best. And it's not always based on the content, but to the competition. So while I've never seen it, I do have friends in, in television who, you know, from a production standpoint, the stuff they come up with and the stuff they make up, and I'm not talking about news stories, so it's a little different, it's softer stuff for talk shows, and the positions that they put people in uh, unknowingly at times just goes against my grain. But it's all about how do you get people to, how do you push the envelope to get more viewers, listeners, whatever, so we can, we can you know, say, hey, our, our revenue is up, and our ratings are up, and here's why. And if it works once, well, we'll do it 20 times. And then I'll, I'm sure you guys have it up there, but, it, you know, as soon as, uh, uh, God, what's the guy's name that does all the paternity tests? Maury Povich. As soon as Maury Povich, somebody, somebody in the production team came up with the idea of doing paternity tests and they got hits, you get five years of paternity tests because people get, it's like Pavlov's dog, as I said before, we get, there's a certain segment of society that will get roped into that. They've got their audience locked in. They're not going to break away from it, and that's their formula. So do I want to sit and see fraternity tests for an hour every day? Hell no. Is there a group of people that will? Hell yes. Can they figure it out how many and then and then charge advertising accordingly, and Maury gets to make millions, and people have jobs, and you get to see who's beating up on who on television? Yeah. So that stuff is skewed, and there's a reason for it. I'm just wondering where that rumor ever came from, because like well, I, I said, it plays good, it plays good in the movies. I mean, it plays good at, at some Big Brother or some sort of uh, media. You know, uh, the man trying to control things and whatever. I've never, you know. So if, if you got four people, three or four people saying we've never seen this, I think it's a safe bet. Again, especially at WGN, which I was fascinated. This is the market three. You know, it has a storied history in, in, in the Midwest. It, there were times it was, you know, the signals booming out all the way across the Great Prairie. So when I went in there, I had obviously deep reverence for the microphone there and what goes on. I would never put myself and my listeners in a position to uh, to have that. But I never it never came down that way any, anyway from anybody. I just find that all of these type of rumors have gone on to kill the medium. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question, but it plays somewhere. It adds a little sinisterism to the, if that's even a word, it adds a sinister element to this uh, this uh, broadcasting business that, quite frankly, most people who watch have no idea what goes in behind the scenes to get it done, the energy and effort it takes to pull this stuff off. And uh, most people couldn't do it. You know, for everybody who doesn't like what uh, Dave Scott talks about, then I always say, that's great. Let me know when your show starts. Most won't. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the trollism of, of unsocial media allows people to sit back and throw bigger and bigger rocks without ever having to do anything except be different and disagree. So um, that was always my out uh, when I was on the air live, you know, especially at WGN or CBS or wherever that is. And, and people call it, I don't like your show. Great. So when you start yours, let me know and I'll listen to you. Well, they never do, but it's only because they disagree. And that's okay too. It's okay. It's a, it's okay to disagree. But I think a lot of this stuff just comes from, you know, an assumption of how things are behind the scenes. And obviously, unless you've worked in it, you really don't know. Then where do you take someone like Jesse Ventura, 
who had his show Conspiracy Theory. He's still doing online blogs. He was the governor of Minnesota, former Navy SEAL, former professional wrestler, who says the media is rigged. He has millions of followers. Love him or hate him. People are following his every word. And with his TV show, he tried to hammer those points on a number of topics, whether it was CERN up in Alaska, whether it was it was 9-11, or whatever the conspiracies were. So how do you how do you take someone like him who has been on both sides of the camera and say, yes, it is fake? Well, look, again, uh, to me, this all gets distilled down to one real simple thing. The, the rudder that, of beliefs that run each of us. And that plays itself out in our lives all the time. So uh, thank you, uh, former Governor uh, Ventura, for your service in public life and as a, as a Navy SEAL. That's fantastic. But that doesn't mean that it goes any further than that when it comes to credibility, in my opinion. So, you know, we could all probably pick people that got elected to office that shouldn't. So, okay, so he did, and that's fine. And I, I was in the service for four years regular and two years reserve, and I served with guys that I wouldn't introduce my sister to. So, you know, that goes only so far. So just because you've done these other things does not, in my opinion, qualify or disqualify you for being an expert in anything else but what you did, meaning that um, he's, if he saw all this conspiracy while he was a Navy SEAL or in the, in, in the governor's mansion and had this big revelation that came out wanted to open the lid, that's one thing. My guess is he's probably always kind of been like this. And when you get a platform, that stuff expands. And look, I'm not saying, you know, you have, these things have to be proven to me. And I'm, 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 you know, a pretty astute fellow. I've been in this stuff 20 years. And when I don't see it on an ongoing basis, I too wonder, well, what are they talking about? How is this rigged? Uh, show me exactly how this, is, this did or didn't play out. I need specific answers with specific results. And then I can kind of tilt my head one way or the other. But innuendo is what this is supposed to sell. I know a lot of the, the shows you do have to do with paranormal things and all that. And I turn on a show on TV. It's like three guys go something and they all kind of make fun of each other and goof around. And I never really see anything, but there's a lot of innuendo coming up next breaking news. And it's a similar thing. It's we're, they're selling uh, innuendo. They're selling the what ifs. And that's to me, what conspiracy stuff is all about or rigged is all about it's the what if this is the way it is. You know, we have a president in this country who said that, the whole system was rigged against him. Turned out he was not right. He was wrong. He's now the president. So you could say this stuff and believe it, and still it turns out it's not true. So for me, it's a fine line. You know, uh, it, it, it really comes down to the individual being smart enough. I've said this 50 times. You know, repetition is everything in radio. The average 55-year-old man in the United States, I don't know about you people up north up there, but it probably holds up the same. The average 55-year-old male in the United States knows the words, Dave, to 30 to 5,500, no, 3,500 songs that he never intended to learn. He didn't go to class for them simply because they're being played on the radio over and over and over and over again. So if I said to you this, and I don't even know how old you are, but I'm guessing that you and I were probably in, within 10 years. If I said to you, buy, buy me some American pie, what do you say? Uh, I think we might. That might be a little. Bye, bit. bye, John McLean. <laughs> yeah, but what, what's the what's the rest of the rest of the verse? Buy, buy me some American pie. And most people say, "Grow my, my Chevy, Chevy, Chevy to the levee. Levee. 
Yes, but the letter is dry. dry. Now, you didn't write the song, and I didn't write the song, but we sing the song like we wrote it, like we were there. And the same thing to me is explains so much that goes on in the media. Repetition, repetition, repetition. And even though we weren't there and didn't write it, we, we spit it out like we were, and all of a sudden we're an expert or, or we're involved in it, and we take a position on something we probably only don't know much about. So for years, you'd sing that song until you figured out it was you know it's because Buddy Holly and, and the Big Bopper and Richie Valentine in a plane crash. But when it came out in 1974, I didn't know that. I just sang it was the greatest song I'd ever heard. And we make things mean what we want them to mean. We make them fit. And that's what humans do. So whether it's politics, sports, whatever, we run it through that, that rudder of belief, and then it comes out the strainer on the other side, and that's how we live our lives. And usually it's based on very little information, but a lot of emotion. So in your opinion, then, what is the best medium out there for people to trust? Is it radio, television, the good old-fashioned newspaper, or the Internet? You know, my favorite breakfast when I was a kid growing up was corned beef hash. And that's my answer because it takes a lot of ingredients to make a really good hash. And so I think that you, it's like cherry picking. You know, there are people I'm sure, like you talked about, you know, up in in Vancouver that have been, and in Canada, you know, stalwart broadcasters are getting harder and harder to find. But do your homework. You know, I mean, really, you know, there's a responsibility that comes to being a, a a citizen of this planet, in my opinion, and the responsibility is that you participate, that you just, you're just not passive nation that I'll, I'll I can't watch it on TV because it's all repeated. It's the same stuff over and over again, expecting a different result. So for me, it's just to still it down. It's like going, to, as I said earlier, we have all this information, at our fingertips more than any other group of humans have ever had in the history of this planet. Do your homework. I know it's not fun Distill it down and uh, go with what you know. Just, all right, we are back. We lost the feed there for just a couple of seconds here, but it will be on. It was the most they, profound things I ever said right there. I'm absolutely. Sure. They missed it all. They missed it all. I do <laughs> yeah. apologize about that. Sometimes this whole internet radio thing, I hate it. I absolutely yeah. Yeah. much prefer, like you, a regular studio, but... It just cut out there. You will be able to hear that answer on the archives, just so you know, ladies and gentlemen. So we did want to say that. It's all a bunch of hash. It's a lot, not the the, the drug type, but actually the good the right, stuff that right. you put Corned on here. Hash. Exactly, That's corned right. beef hash. Absolutely. Let's get to a question from Everett here, and he is asking, how does a legitimate media outlet with journalistic integrity draw an audience away from those Maury Povish, Alex Jones type of outlets today? I don't know that it's possible anymore. There was a time I think they were distinctly apart, and now because of the pressure with the money and all that goes along with it, uh, it's, it's, look, on one hand, you're not going to get a bunch of people, in my opinion, who watch the Maury Povich show or Jerry Springer show, so they go over and start listening, you know, watching uh, Charlie Rose. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. So I think what's happening is you're getting these defined groups, and and there and and the media, you know, everything from from uh, especially in radio with all the gadgets they have to measure who's listening, and the same thing goes with television. Once your group is defined, once your demographic is defined, once your audience is defined. It isn't so much bringing new people in, it's not losing the ones that you have. And it is so sliced and diced at this point that 
uh, look, we talked about Fox earlier. Fox's news group is, and listeners and, and audience is very well defined. Uh, they'll list, they'll watch shows of similar ilk like that on their network, but they're not going to jump over and spend three hours on CNN. And so, and the reverse is the same. So, those audiences aren't going anywhere. And I don't think, which is a good question, but I don't think the competition to get a CNN, for example, to get the audience that watches Maury Povich, the only we're going to get is they do paternity tests. And I don't see that happening. Mm. Uh, so I don't think it's about that. I think it's about the audience. It's about retaining who they have. And uh, again, the rest of them, you know, it's, it's just, it's, I, I just tell people all the time. Um, if I, you know, how do you define Elvis Presley? Uh, what kind of singer was he? And they said, he was a rock and roll singer. Well, he's a gospel singer. Well, he's a soul singer. He's a blues singer. He's a country singer. He did, so he, was, he, he didn't fit in any category, yet he has fans in each category. And the media is like that. There are some things that are monolithic in a way that they fit many different categories. But over time, it's getting thinner and thinner and smaller and smaller because uh, of the way the audiences are set up and the way that they're crafted. And um, it's, it's, there's a lot goes on behind the scenes to making sure those people show up and they don't leave. Let's put it that way. Question coming in from Twitter at hashtag spaced out radio. And this comes from a Canadian listener, Muji boy. And he is asking, do you think people would trust a government sponsored public broadcaster in the United States? That was more mainstream, like what the Canadian broadcasting corporation is here in Canada or the BBC in Britain. No, <laughs> I don't. I think that we're past that point. Look, they're they're cutting funding, or they want to cut funding. I know what's going to happen for uh, public broadcasting here in the states. So there's not like a state-run or a government-run, you know, uh, news outlet. Uh, that's for sure. Will it ever happen? I don't think so. I think there's just too much money in the other sectors to be made for that to even be considered. But it's a great idea. Um, I just, I, you know, I actually laughed out loud because that's an easy answer at this south of the border here. Uh, you know, the, the public broadcasting that is funded by uh, listeners and viewers and some government money is struggling. And I don't think you'd ever get to a point where anybody in the government could think it was a good waste of a good use of money. Listen to me, good waste. They'd call it a waste of money. Have anything like that even remotely close for sure than that next in the next 36 months now. It's all a big jumbled mess that we hope that one, a once proud career can come back because let's face it, we can only handle so much of the size of Kim Kardashian's, but, and oh if, you know, yeah. sports updates and sports drama and everything that doesn't seem to mean anything in the meantime, there are legitimate criminals in positions in Washington, in Ottawa, in other parts of the area, literally getting away with murder because politicians now, and I'm sure you'll agree, no longer fear the media. They don't need to. Yeah. True. Um, the There was a guy in Chicago many years ago uh, named John Drummond, and his nickname was Bulldog, Bulldog John Drummond. If Bulldog was coming for you, man, you know, you'd, you'd hightail it. And now it has become uh, very different. It's, it's almost like going to a massage parlor. Uh, everybody's rubbing up on everybody else. And, and the difficult question in pinning people's ears back and putting people on point 
um, it's it's reversed itself, and, you know, back from the Edward R. Murrow days, and and it goes along with that. And I think there's look, there's a group of people, there's a smattering of broadcasters I know, and I like to include myself in that group, even though I'm not a pure talk radio news guy. I've been in talk radio for 20 years, but not doing just news stuff. I'm going to talk about the human condition all the time, but I go back to what um, uh, Fred Rogers said, Mr. Rogers, who was, you know, a world known guy. And he, he said, um, the space between the, uh, the television and the viewer is sacred. And I would look at the same thing when it comes down to radios, if the space between the microphone and the, and the listener was sacred. But when it comes to politics, um, those rules have changed. And I'm not sure, you know, again, you got so many outlets and you want to get the story, you want to get this, and you want to get that, you don't want to pick anybody off, you don't want to get anybody mad. And somebody kind of plays along and plays along. And, and politicians are like, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't want to talk to you anymore. You know, President Trump, Donald Trump, has become a master at that. He's been very selective who he talks to, and the rest of you guys, you know, I'm not talking to you. So, you know, it, it, the, the ball has gone back in their court. And when, so if you add the, the leverage that they used to have in the media is gone to a great degree, and then you have people, you know, again, repeating stuff over and over again, even though it isn't true, saying fake news, fake news, fake news. Well, it's not fake. Uh, but if you repeat stuff enough, you go, oh, maybe, but it's only to a certain segment. You know, here in the States, uh, you know, his polling numbers aren't real good. And I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of polls anyway, because there's nothing you can do about it. When you talk to 1,800 people out of a, a country of 330 million, I don't know if that's indicative really of, of how it's going. But the point is, um, you know, we're, we're here witnessing something I thought I'd never see. And I think so much of it is based on perception and reality and what people think is real, what is it, and how it transfers over to government, what have you. So we have a, a guy who was, you know, the least qualified human on the planet to be in the White House, and he is. How does that happen? Because he's able to convince a certain segment of society that he belonged there, and he would say things uh, that, to me, were past offensive, past the line, all that kind of stuff, uh, but was able to get it done. That's no different than the media, especially outlets that, are going for the same, they don't want to be in office, they just want your money. So they got to push, 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 and say things that are outrageous. And when they say out things that are outrageous, their, their listeners rally, and the media pays attention, and the ad rates go up. And they repeat that over and over again. I guess where I got confused with it, because I was watching intently what happened during the last election in the United States, because I love it when a lot of my American friends, and I have some very close friends spread out around the country, they'll say, you know, if, they have, if they're talking politically on their Facebook, and I'll mention something, they'll say, why are you even responding? You're Canadian. Well, the answer is because everything that happens down there affects what happens up here. <laughs> yeah. We're kind of neighbors yep. that way. And yeah, what, yeah, heard that. Yeah, it's happened once or twice. But yeah. the, the thing, John, that really got to me during the election coverage, and I was watching CNN, and here is one of their talking heads on there. And they go to the polls, and they bring up California. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing, because literally they had 1% of the vote in. And CNN yeah. was already calling the state as a Democratic win. Now, the West Coast is fully Democratic when it comes to a national election. We understand that. But how can you be a legitimate news source and call a state 
poll at 1%. Yep. You know, um, what's, I'm going to go back to the competition statement I made before. Uh, you want to be first, you know, how many times in the last, especially at the, the election, that there was retractions about, well, we made a prediction that wasn't true and it didn't turn out and, you know, we didn't mean this and we, we, we got to go back. Everybody wants to be first. And first means if you said it first, that people will follow you again. And I'm going to go back to it, Dave, for the 15th time in this conversation about ad rates and what people watch and how that plays out. And so if you can say you're first in news because we called it right next thing, I'm not kidding you. They'll get their salespeople together. It becomes part of their sales pitch. So it diminishes their reputation uh, to some degree. But if they get it right by some weird chance, hey, we're calling California ready. We're first in news. We got it right. Those are bragging rights. And those things all translate in dollars somewhere. It's as weird as it is. And yet it's so watered down. It's so, it's so, um, it's so small. It's so not uh, responsible to do that kind of stuff. And inevitably, they have to come back at some point and retract things that they said just you know, 25, 30 minutes ago. But again, there's huge competition. If they can't come up with something to keep your attention and say, yep, there's 1% in it and, and, and it's here, they're calling it, and next thing you know, CNN's calling it, they just made the news in the news. So it's all tied in. And, and, it, and look, you're talking about content, what people want to listen to, and how do you do this, and where do you find the best news, and what's down the middle and all that. I believe that most people live in the middle. I really do. There's, you know, on the seesaw, the thing in the middle, that, that axle in the middle, it holds it together. That's what it's all about. That's the pivot point. Most people I know live in the middle. I'm not talking about politically so much, but commonsensically. They live in the middle. They, 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 they're aware of what's going on. Uh, they, they turn something on TV or they go on to, you know, the Internet or Facebook or whatever, and they see a, a news story. And they go, oh, that's just ridiculous. And they don't give it a second thought. But it's only the smaller audiences, the smaller uh, reaction points that grab the news, and that's the stuff that sells because we sit there and shake our head and go, yeah, I saw that two days ago, and now it's on TV, and the day afterwards, they find out it's not true at all. So, I mean, you look at this stuff and you say it's gotten watered down because of so many outlets, the quality has dropped enormously, and whoever's first is first, and, and you give up things when you're trying to be that expedient. Either way, I, I think I realize what you're saying about the almighty dollar and all that advertisement, money, and revenue that comes in. That is the most important thing when you have corporations owning media outlets. But well, look, let me just make one point. Let me jump on this for a second. ESPN just laid off like 150 people. Did you hear this? Yes, I did. And some of them, right. So ESPN did that. Well, there's, in my opinion, there's a reason for that is because if you have a 24-hour news source and all your uh, or sports source and you're basically repackaging 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 what's going on in sports stores and the conversation you can only do that for so long you've saturated your own market so much that it can't sustain itself so it no matter what it does it all comes back to the dollar and for a while you could ride it out and then you get to the point where like you know we got all these people on board and we're they're delivering the same content. We can deliver the same content with half the people. It's always about the dollars. It's always about the revenue. I don't care whether it's CNN, ESPN, or WDBC and Escanaba. It's all about the dollars, the bottom line. And that everything works from that point upward. So, you know, you know, they're on call and stuff early. It's, it's to try and get ahead of something, to make it look like something 
So we're better than something. And that's what, unfortunately, in so many ways, uh, the hype around the media, no wonder it gets, it gets played out because I can't watch this. But I've been in it. I can't even watch it. So you know, I, I apologize for stepping on you there. But to me, oh, that was a yeah. perfect example, perfect example of, of, of you, you know, you saturated your own market so bad that you had to get rid of 150 people because it's too much. It's not balanced. It never was. Well, I have five friends who recently lost their jobs in Vancouver. And they were working for a company called Bell Media, which is one of Canada's largest broadcasting corporations. And three hundred, over 300 people lost their jobs across the country in Bell Media. And they said it was because of a shortfall in profit. Well, when it was released that their profits were not doing too bad... It was released that their third quarter of last year, they did right it before the layoffs. They made seven hundred and seventy million dollars for their stockholders and their shareholders. Sure, sure. So sure. Appar- apparently, that that three million or so to pay those people just needed yeah. to be saved. But this is what's happened, though, in media, and I don't think a lot of people fully understand. Back in the day, we had real radio people or real television people running stations. They just got promoted, maybe from 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 writer to reporter to anchor to news director to now your station manager. But somewhere along the lines, all of a sudden, accountants and lawyers took over. Yeah. And yeah, that, to yeah. me, is what is the true villain of what media has become. What would be your opinion on I agree. that? Well, I agree. I've worked for people that have been fantastic. A friend of mine is a, a fellow named Dan Mason, who was the uh, recently retired president of, of CBS Radio out of New York. And Dan started out as a disc jockey and worked his all the way up. And the only thing he never did, he said, which was good, was he never had to spend time in the sales pit. He never had to do sales. And I asked him, well, why was that? He goes, because I was so, I'm in a day and age now where the, the accountants and the salespeople and the lawyers become program directors and general managers, they have no experience with content, working with people, the real meat of the organization, the real meat of the business. They have no experience that everything's on a spreadsheet to them. So if it doesn't add up, you cut. Uh, the, the, the people that work from the bottom up, the, the people that were in the business, they knew how to build their way out of that stuff. And, and those steps have been skipped over. So, uh, you're exactly right. And I, I, it's, 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 it's amazing to me, you know, radio in many ways is like a giant recycling bin. These people move around to different places. They don't do any better than they did the last place they were at, but they're all kind of in the, in the washing and, and spin cycle. And they just keep around and around and around and they don't get any better results. They just keep staying in the game for some odd reason. Uh, but it, it seems to be harder and harder to find people that work their way up, that know the business, that can see this stuff clearly. Um, you know, and, you know, WGN is a perfect example. I did uh, three years there and, uh, you know, I was, I did very well and I it was the go-to guy. I was kind of the, the fill in closure every day. And I did three hours a day here and three hours a day the next day and this and that. And the guy that was, uh, that had been brought in by the previous administration was a buddy of the guy who, you know, bought the station billionaire so he got a huge contract for four years. So he's phoning it in from Cincinnati, not even in Chicago. I live here, grew up here. He's getting paid a ridiculous amount of money. And I was just waiting for his contract. And two months before it ended, um, new owner, uh, WGN was being sold out the Tribune and things were moving around. 
And uh, with that went everybody, myself included. So here I was with all this expertise and, and uh, uh, you know, things I could bring to the table as a Chicagoan. And uh, a guy's phoning it in from Cincinnati making, you know, $1.2 million a year to do three hours of radio a day from a different town. Uh, but he's only in that position because he knew someone and that's how it works. So it's getting less and less that what you do and your performance and your value has anything to do with being on the radio. So for me now, when I do consulting or, or build out programs or, or things like that, it's very satisfying because I get to build it from the ground up. I, I'm a foundational guy and I like to see these things work and, and, you know, come to fruition. I had a great time with that with over radio it was, we started with a concept that I'd brought to them in 2004. It never turned out exactly like I thought it would, but that's okay. It, it was put together and, um, you know, it should have continued for much longer. But even then when I left there, I was, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'll ever make the kind of money that I, I made there. It may have been a one and done thing, but, uh, it did prove that sometimes things work out far better than I can ever expect. Sometimes they fall short. Uh, but as I started out talking with you at the beginning of all this, it goes back to, um, following through what I was given to do and uh, no one said I was going to become, I mean, it, it does bother me and I wouldn't be human if I didn't say it does bother me that, you know, it's all about uh, repackaging yourself. Howard Stern, when I started radio was a guy who was a, a, a zany morning guy out of New York who, you know, gave people t-shirts because they stuck tampons up their nose. Hardly in my opinion, the best use of Marconi's instrument, but, a segment of society will listen to that stuff. So here's a guy who at one time was reviled because of what he did. And now he's revered as a, as a, as a judge on America's got talent. So he never was that other guy, but he was able to sell it. If nothing else, I've never had to sell out uh, anything other than I am. And it's worked. Okay. A couple quick questions before we get to your book here to round out the show. Gail is asking, what percentage of our news do you believe comes from sources like Reuters or AP? I think it depends on who. So those are the sources. Those are the main sources. It depends on how much you think gets filtered out to the news organizations. That's a different question. So uh, every, to my knowledge and the people I've worked with, every, everyone gets Reuters and AP and uh, probably half a dozen other sources that are constantly pounding this stuff out. But with the advent of the internet, uh, you're seeing the sources skipped over and not being fact-checked and all that goes along with it. So to my knowledge, in the places I've worked, uh, the dozen places or so, they all had access to that. It's all still out there. It's all being, uh, it has, you know, you can, you can access the information. But newsrooms, uh, in whether it's expediency or whatever they want to call it, are leapfrogging over those trusted sources that there was no, listen, back in the day, if you said Reuters, you knew, you knew it was serious. You knew it was solid. Now, you know, you may have someone like, oh, I don't have time for that. I'm just going to go Google it. And <laughs> it's not exactly the same thing. The average layperson to go use Google. Sure. But if you have access to Reuters, none of the news people I know would ever jump over that, that were worth their salt. You have to tell me about your blog. I have heard so much about your Wednesday rants that you no. just let it loose. Fill us in on that. So when I started radio uh, in 97, I, you know, I was doing just a couple hours a week. 
and then work my way up, as I mentioned, to three hours a day, Dr. Laura, blah, blah, blah. And in 1999, when, remember the Y2K thing was going to happen, end of the world? Yes, <laughs> never indeed. Did, I, had, I had extra material, and I started writing stuff on the side. And um, I've always been a writer. I, I love reading, obviously, and all these things. And um, I started writing these one-minute vignettes called Power Thoughts. And from 1999 to 2004, I wrote 8,000 one-minute it's kind of fanatical with me, but it's like a download. So I would write these power thoughts and these were all vignettes that I wrote, scripted, produced and aired over, over a you know, seven year period. And so, um, I learned that, um, in addition to being on the air three hours a day, five days a week, which is great. And it's an ego stroke. And I get to it's like playing a ball game for me. I also learned that you could say a lot in a minute and I could get a point across in a very short amount of time. So about four years ago, I started to understand on social media a little bit more. I'd like to say social media, but for the most part, people are not nice to each other. It's astonishing to me, but I started learning the same thing with social media. Uh, you, can, you can get bombardment. There's way too much of a good thing. And I started picking out certain ways to see how people would respond, almost like fishing. What kind of bait could I use to throw it onto the, into the world, into the virtual world, and, and say what I need to say and have people respond, and it doesn't get lost. And I needed a pointed listing. If I was on from nine to noon, you could turn on WGN and sure enough, there I'd be. Uh, so I started looking at the days of the week and how things are and how trends were and all this kind of stuff. And Wednesdays uh, is middle week for most people. Monday, people are frantic. Tuesday, people are recovering. Wednesday, people are hopeful that they're going to get to Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And Wednesday seemed to be traffic-wise uh, pretty busy. So it, it fell in line with me that about the middle of the week, you've pretty much had enough of what's going on the first few days of the week. And you're hoping things are going to get better at the end of the week. And it was the perfect time to just drop something in. So about four years ago, maybe a little bit longer, I started writing the Wednesday rant. And it was, it was a little bit of a diversion from my books that I write, which are um, both of them are, are, are somewhat autobiographical in, in the content and experiences that I had, but they're also looking for the good in things and, and, and the higher ground aspect. And what can I, you know, what can I extract from this? So it's not just a liability, but it's a lesson. And that I'm able to grow through these things. Everything we've talked about tonight, uh, Dave, there's opportunity in this to become better. Uh, if you become a better consumer, if you become a better listener of your viewer, that's on you to do. So yeah, if you don't like the way the news is great, but then take it upon yourself to do something about it as opposed to turning it off and not learning anything. So that was, that's the premise of pretty much everything that I do inform, entertain, inspire, but the blog, the Wednesday rant really got to be kind of like my, my, my pressure valve let off some of this stuff. Look, I'm still a knuckle dragger. Sometimes I still don't like what's going on in the world. You know, I'm just going to say it the way it was back a year and a half ago. Uh, if, if I was in the same place when Donald Trump called a prisoner of war, not a hero. And this guy had five deferments, I'd have popped him right in the chops. I'm still that guy too, even though I try to be Zen-like. So the Wednesday rant started to get to be this thing where these, this, my own pressure would build up and I would write about stuff that was just, you know, torquing my bolts and, you know, rubbing my rhubarb. It was just nothing. It was just stuff that was going on. I couldn't believe it was going on. And I would write about it and the people, you know, obviously grabbed on. So over time though, it has gotten even more, um, profound for me and cathartic for me to write these and what's happened <laughs> if i don't have it up like by 10 o'clock in the morning on a wednesday 
I'll get a hundred text messages or, or chat boxes going, are you all right? Are you sick? Where's the rant today? What's going? And it's become a point of, you know, social media gurus love this stuff. It's become a pointed meeting, uh, a meeting place for people. And today, for example, I wrote about my daughter and, and, and about, uh, you know, this kidney transplant, all that went along with it, that organ donation awareness month is April. And for many years in the media, I knew that like the back of my hand, I pounded it out. When I was a, the, the senior producer of the Oz show, I made sure we had six shows a year on organ donation. It's very close to me. Uh, and, and now 15 years after the transplant, even though some amazing things have happened, she's doing great. I've kind of let that go a little bit. And today it struck me. And so the Wednesday rant wasn't a negative thing. It was, this is the experience I've had, and this is what you can do to be a, just a force in the world. And that, you know, organ donation, you know, the life you save is not going to be your own. And that's the whole idea. And so it's become a platform, very powerful for me. Actually, in some ways, I think even more powerful than even doing radio at times because it's, 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 it's astonishing, really. It's the one thing now at this point in my life, in my career, after 20 years, that I'm just uh, I get all geeked up to go, right. I never know what it's going to be about. I never know what's going to trip my trigger. It actually almost started with what we talked about tonight a little bit, standing in line at the supermarket, looking at a bunch of magazines that are total BS and people buy it anyway. And it got circumvented in a good way uh, about something far more important, but that's what the Wednesday rant is. And people can find me at John St. And you can go to the blog page and see all the rants that are there. And I, sometimes I drop stuff in on other days too, but, usually Wednesday's the day and you can subscribe there and all that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a great outing for me. It keeps, helps me keep my sanity. Yeah, that, <laughs> this is Eric Markham. Uh, yeah. Now with your, with your Wednesday rant, you've kind of become the Pavlovian. So do you feel a, or you become the Dr. Pavlov? You, you mentioned if you don't have it, written by a certain time you start getting people yeah. that are good it's almost now do you find do you find that that bears a like a burden of responsibility it sure does eric and i'm up to that and i'm and and it's i'm good with that uh i think what i get a chance to do and the people that check in and the people that wait for it i think uh if i may be so bold i call it the an antidote to the erosion of life that somehow I'm able to see these things in a certain way. You know, I know that you have a copy of my book, every moment matters. And that's filled with stories and events and, and experiences I've had that I, that I was able to turn them in a way like a kaleidoscope in a way to see them differently, to learn something different about myself. Like I said before, that these things are not just a waste of time. They're not just accidents, they're incidents. So when I'm writing the Wednesday rant, there's a great responsibility there. I think that, that I get an opportunity, quite frankly, to play a little Edward R. Murrow a little bit. I get a chance to be uh, a little bit of a peacekeeper. I get a chance to say, hold on a second. Let's take a look at, let's take a breath, three deep breaths, and let's take a look at things this way. And then what do you think after that? And this is about whether people agree with me or not. And look, I still get snarky with stuff, and I still push on stuff. And last week I wrote about everybody from Trump to Alex Jones. This week is different. I never know what it is but it's something that uh, people are connecting with. And I try to bring it up to a point where it's like, we need to look at this, you know, as my old buddy Wayne Dyer used to say, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And if that's not what the media's responsibility is, in my opinion, for me, what I do is just let's take a look at it different. 
that I'm just wasting my time. But for the last four years, it seems to be uh, spot on. Uh, yeah, yeah, I just love that dragonfly anal- analogy. As oh, you're boy. as you're looking at this dragonfly and realizing with that compound eye, all yeah. the different ways that you know that that that's the part in your book that I I had to pause a moment and just of all the things I've read in there, that's the one that hit me. Was that a? Uh, I don't know. It just seems like that was a. Uh, a light bulb over the head moment for you as well. Sure was. That that story is called Dragonfly in in, in the book, and uh, it was astonishing to me. Look, you know, we we live in a miracle, man. One of the reasons I'm so uh, on this environmental stuff, and I just finished four years of writing 300 episodes. I mentioned Bill Curtis earlier from Cold Case Files, American Justice. We collaborated on something I'm very proud of. It's called Earth Matters, and, and it was the same thing. I see this stuff not through one eye or two eyes, but about 40 eyes. And my head's constantly on a swivel. I'm seeing these things and I'm interpreting them and going, how do I take this information and transform it into something where people can, can see it, you know, like I see it. And that dragonfly chapter is a perfect example. I was up north in my home and uh, this dragonfly, I just, you know, it, it came flying across the yard at me. And I realized that at instant that as Jean-Michel Cousteau says, we're the youngest species on the planet. Dragonflies been around for like 500 million years. 500 billion years. And I get to share space with this, this incredible creature. And I think I know what's going on. 500 million years. And so when this little beastie got caught in the back window of my car in my garage, it was buzzing away its round and trying to get out. I had this epiphany. It's like, here's this ancient creature showing me this lesson how many times in my life even with all its eyesight even with all the ways it can see things even the way it can turn its head all the way around it still can't get out and the glass is right there how many times in my life have i been stuck like that because i was not looking in the right direction even with all that was around me so it's those type of things that i'm able to apparently some whatever i've been given to do is extract the the uh, extraordinary out of the ordinary and if you read the uh, forward of the book you know Oz talks about it uh, you know the human heart stays alive every person listening to this show all 140,000 of you the only reason you're alive is because the very first pump of your heart feeds itself first it goes back into the heart and then it goes out back into the heart and then it goes out we're not real good as humans feeding ourselves first you can tell by this conversation tonight, we forget how important we are. The odds of being born are astronomical. Just being alive on the planet at this time is a miracle. And so when we forget all that stuff, everything looks like chaos. So my job has always been pushing that stuff back a little bit. I don't mind getting in the ring and going a few rounds, but also taking a look at things in a different perspective. So you'll never look at a dragonfly the same way again. And there are a lot of stories in that book that, uh, that are about changing perspectives. So we live... So, so our life experience just isn't about politics and news because I'm here to tell you there's more life than that. John, thank you so much for being on Spaced Out Radio tonight. What an absolute pleasure to have you. I'm going to get you to hold on one second. John St. Augustine, our guest tonight on Spaced Out Radio. Tomorrow night on the program, Daniel Falkenbach will be with us at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern time. First time we're going into the flat earth debate right here on the mighty SOR. 
want to say thank you to everyone on Twitter and in the chat rooms for participating tonight. You all were fantastic. Remember, tell a friend. That's how we're going to grow. We want to own the night right here on Spaced Out Radio. Mr. Bumblefoot, take us home.